Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. I am a 32-year-old Chicago-based entrepreneur, author, pop culture commentator. I started this podcast because I'm very curious. I love to deep dive. And oftentimes I find myself so distracted by the day's events or random rabbit hole that I, I, I lose track of time and find myself in a full-blown sprint to my destination having to text a friend, be there in five. And it's also the name of my, it's the namesake of my company that I'll talk about later of why I think I have some relevant experience to this um, story. And if you're new here, hi, I love you. Thank you for being here. Um, it is mostly a monologue style of podcast. Sometimes I have guests. It is designed to be long form. And before you roll your eyes, Joe Rogan did just land a hundred mil deal. And he did have an episode last week that was four hours and four minutes. And at least I'm not doing that. So I'm basically spark notes comparatively. And for that, you're welcome. And I wasn't going to do an episode about this because it's being so widely covered. And because I'm not a listener of Caller Daddy. And I did the thing that I'm actually always trying to discourage people to do, which is over associate the depth and intrigue of a story with the content of its subjects when really there's layers upon layers upon lessons upon lessons here once I dug into it that I couldn't not share and speak through, especially given my background. Around here, it's a little less daddy and a little more chatty. Um, even my experience dating, it wasn't like I was quiet and mysterious. I was like, what do you do? What do you like? Where are you from? What do you think? What do you know? And like, you know, it's just, it's my vibe. And, you know, as sexy as that is, um, I welcome any Call Her Daddy fans. If you are the part of the daddy gang and you are mor mourning, God bless. I hope you know with me talking through this story, my point is I I want to be as neutral as possible because A, none of this is personal. It's kind of a broader business discussion that's turned into kind of a gossipy news story. But actually, my my quest here is to defend both sides in a way that I feel like isn't super cool to be doing because it's more exciting to give a hot take. Nobody likes a lukewarm take. No, nobody wants an airport Dasani temperature of an opinion. But I think sometimes it's necessary to showcase both sides of a story. And I get the plight of call her daddy. I get the plight of Barstool. And I think there's so many sides to this story. And I don't like want to take away from their success or minimize them at all. Do I have opinions on my perspective as it relates to the subject matter and how things could have been approached and where it netted out. Absolutely. But I think it's important to consider this as kind of objective commentary. And I listened to a couple more episodes in preparing for this, but I actually was like, I, I maybe don't want to be a fan. And it's maybe better for me to not speak to this as a fan because I'm not looking at this through rose-colored glasses. I really want to speak through more of the business transaction and also kind of analyze the popularity of the podcast itself. Call Her Daddy is an, is, is a, is a, is an element of lore in the podcast community, <laughs> for lack of a better word. It's, it's so successful. It's, un, it's unbelievable. I've been podcasting a little bit longer than they have. I'm February 2018. They're October. They went with a big media company. I'm independent. They've seen success beyond their wildest dreams. I am still, you know trying to fall asleep to like the, the calm app, but I'm hoping shortly I will achieve my dreams. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, this podcast is amazing. I've been doing it for two over two years. We have millions of downloads. It's it's honestly like the coolest job I've ever, ever had. And I'm so grateful for it. But what I when I really thought about it, it was kind of a funny thing where I think that my journey podcasting kind of represents the exact inverse of their path in that I've made all of the exact opposite decisions they have. And while 
to quote Casey Musgraves tripping on psychedelics on her porch in Tennessee, I'm a product of a slow burn. They are a product of a skyrocket and they're different types of career trajectories. And I can speak from the side of the alternative, having experienced less sensationalized popularity and also examine it from the standpoint of like, what's the value of that springboard they were given that they were so quick to dismiss in all of this, right? Also, I'm going to, I'm actually going to walk through the story in a more detailed way than I usually do. The point of my podcast isn't to regurgitate what everyone else is talking about. It's to provide commentary. So that's why I don't always do like a total step-by-step recap, but this is everywhere. Google call her daddy barstool. Uh, Taylor Lawrence wrote a fantastic New York Times piece summarizing it. There's, I mean, a ton of more like gossipy pieces, you know, in the post. This is literally everywhere. So you might want to do some summer reading and get back to me. But um, anyway, yeah, for some background, like I think that diff- it's just interesting to read about their story and to think about how I've, based on my own experience, I've been incredibly cautious about every decision being grounded and keeping what's mine. But I think that my size and scale really showcases how there's limitations. Either way you go about monetizing yourself as a personality. And when you go the self-employed, self-taught, self-made, independent of a network route, which I did, versus a more talent incubation style where you're under the network or under an umbrella of some company with much broader reach and existing audience and immense resources they can put behind you to kind of catapult you into a level of personality that would take a very long time to get to on your own. So I actually thought this week I'd walk through some of this, not only because this controversy is very top of mind in the media, but also because I think it it touches on a lot of other issues. If you're a regular listener, the past few weeks, uh, as one does, I spent six hours talking about influencers in this uh, a podcast series that was kind of trying to examine how the role of influencers should or shouldn't shift and how people were perceiving their actions during a time of unprecedented tension, not only in the world, but also which kind of translated through people's social media behavior. And two pieces of this that I talked about were one kind of taking a step back and re- examining the unconscious bias that some of us may be exercising toward female influencers at times, those that have sponsored content that want to make money that are trying to capitalize off of the business of being a person. And my point was that this industry is largely trivialized due to its nascence to society and its subject matter. But more importantly, I think women serving as the backbone of the influencer movement is exactly why critics are so willing to label it uh, as spineless, um, as being purposeless, as being kind of weak and nonsensical and is simply a currency placed on one's own vanity that has no legitimate place in society. God forbid we add value. God forbid people want to hear our thoughts, ideas, see our outfits. Like, you know, come on. Uh, Life is based off of the light and heavy. We need a spectrum. We need balance. And nobody that argues for the legitimacy and importance of, like, sports can argue with the legitimacy of me sinking six hours into styling the perfect bar cart. You know, it's like, whatever you know how is you watching the game any different than me toting around my gold cart of tchotchkes and libations like i'm a home goods flight attendant you know like we all get our sources sources of joy somewhere and it doesn't 
matter how important it is relative to the rest of society. And honestly, I kind of take that back. I don't want you guys to be like, oh, bar cart's like 2012 much? You drinking a Moscow mule in a Chevron print dress? Like, no, I'm with the times, but you know what I mean. Obviously, a houseplant is the new bar cart, but again, beside the point. But also with that point, people are really flexing their garden beds right now and it's triggering. But anyway, that's not the point of today's episode. (laughs) All of us city, we're honestly, the, the suburbs are winning. The suburbs are winning. This is, I never thought I'd see this day. I don't. I'm terrified of leaving the city, but like all all of you people with like your storage and like your extra rooms that aren't like super close to your spouse and, you know, your your yards and gardens and pools. It's like, damn, I mean, it's having me rethink everything I was scared of about the suburbs. A major one being having to answer the door for trick-or-treaters. What was I talking about? <laughs> um, oh, yeah. The, so the podcast I did on influencers, part of it was like, OK, how do we perceive and talk about women in the influencer space? especially in the context of them making money and why are we so fundamentally opposed to it, even though the business model isn't that different from any other entertainment programming or content medium that has to fund itself through one of two revenue streams, subscriber fees or ad revenue. Um, And the second piece of that was I talked a lot about the business of podcasting, how podcasts make money with CPMs, ad networks, all that stuff. And toward the end, I talked about my experience interacting with and negotiating with uh, podcast networks that I found to be a ironically um, archaic relative to what I consider to be a fairly new media form and how the outcome of those conversations made me ultimately decide to stay independent because I would have had to change and I ultimately wanted to maintain control. Even though I didn't go super in-depth into that, it's kind of interesting. That was toward the end of last week's episode and then all of the controversy with Caller Daddy this week is so uh, directly tied to these decisions we make when we want to start doing something with our talent, our voice, our brains, and the place you decide to house those things, how it relates to your growth and how it ultimately affects your control and equity down the line. So I thought it could be interesting to examine this kind of coming off of that episode where we explored a lot of these topics. I do think that I'm hearing a lot of the way people are talking about this story very like unfavorably toward one side or the other. And as always, you know, there's nothing sexier than a person that likes to play both sides, play devil's advocate and point out the gray in a world of black and white, which is far more exciting and hyperbolic and catchy. But no, not me. I just stay under the radar, try not to provide any clickbait whatsoever, just stewing in a sea of essie chin chili gray. I don't know. I, I don't, Did I even do an intro? I don't remember. But anyways, I, I hope everyone's doing well. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm still sheltered in place. That's OK, because it's given me endless time to obsess over a news story about a podcast I don't even listen to. So there we are. What a time to be alive. What a time to do a dive. I think when I got off topic, I was explaining uh, that I try to avoid things that are that have so much coverage unless I can add value because I don't want to regurgitate information. And while I'll have to do some of that, this is actually kind of an inter- interesting intersection of a lot of my personal experiences. Um, and so I'll tell you a little bit more about my experience with uh, pursuing and owning intellectual property with building a brand was shifting from an employee to a business owner to a personality, um, being self-taught in the business of podcasting and my active decision to stay independent as I learned more about the business of podcasting. For a little bit more context in the event you're new here, I left my corporate job a little over five years ago because I kind of accidentally started a side business based off of a hobby where I was just trying to not burn down my apartment. And I put stuff like turn off your curling iron and turn off your straightener on doormats kind of tried to, (laughs) this sounds ridiculous, disrupt the uh, doormat model in terms of if you turn them upside down and use them to remind you of things on your way out instead of welcoming 
them on your way in, it kind of was an innovation on the most stale standard household category and a different a different utility of them. And it ended up working. They took off. Um, I left my job. We sold hundreds of thousands of dollars in doormats that reminded forgetful people of things on their way out from, you know, turning off your hair appliances to your oven or stove or coffee pot to remembering to take your medicine or take the dogs out, keys, phone, wallet, affirmations telling you you were pretty, you'd have a great day, you know, the, the, the whole song and dance. I had this whole line of reminder doormats. It was incredibly specific. It had nothing to do with my expertise. And um, I named the brand Be There in Five because to me, a person that would be that forgetful uh, was in my exact target customer. And they would probably be the type of person that was like distracted and flustered and always being really optimistic about their time, therefore texting their friends that they'd be there in five, they swore. Yet, obviously, they're still in the shower. A few years in, I realized that my skill set, my value had nothing to do with manufacturing a product and everything to do with the idea and concept behind Be There in Five, the branding of it. And kind of it was more emblematic to me of the way I looked at the world and the type of ideas and the type of things I wanted to execute on going forward that really did not hinge on me owning a, <laughs> a doormat empire. So I had to make a conscious decision to shift the brand Be There in Five away from the mats and more to me as a person because I wanted more from the brand. I thought it meant something bigger. Um, and I wanted to be a person that's able to do multiple things under the umbrella of one brand that I wholly own that isn't overly niche down into a category. Beyond that, a huge driver of that decision to, to leverage the brand equity I'd built through the mats but diversify the output of the brand Be There in Five was because I was rampantly, if not borderline run into the ground by an intellectual property infringement, by copying, by fighting so hard to protect a product that is, is inherently unprotectable given the ornamental nature of the thing that makes it distinct. I own five registered U.S. trademarks. I've sent more cease and desist than I've <laughs> cared to even count. I've had, I've, I've had a, an interesting time learning about uh, pursuing, registering, and then policing intellectual property to a point where I really, I feel like I have a good grasp on the value of it and want to kind of explain the business deal from my lens as well, because I cannot believe that above all else, Sophia and Alex, the two hosts of Color Daddy, aren't going after the name, the brand, and to keep what they've built with the runway given to them by Barstool. Okay, so to back up, Barstool, it started as a sports and pop culture blog that was and is still fairly male-centric. They now are a huge media company that gets the majority of its revenue, I believe, from podcasts, from merch, and uh, gambling. And pretty recently, in um, early 2020, a gaming company acquired a 36% stake in Barstool Sports for roughly $160 million, putting their valuation at around $450 million. They generate around $100 million in annual revenue, and 35% of that revenue comes from podcasts. And out of all of their podcasts, Call Her Daddy is, honestly, I, I think Call, Call Her Daddy is their hit. It's it's their star. It's their biggest ad driver of ad revenue, and it's their the podcast that has their largest download numbers. 
And I don't mean by like 10, 20%. I mean by like three, four X. So I think what I'll do, I'll tell you about the background of the podcast in the topic um, and why it's popular and then kind of go through the current controversy. And I want to tell you a little bit more about why I think it's totally fair to say that they're underpaid and it's not greedy to want to fight for your own value. But at the same time, the, the nature of forecasting one's own value at the beginning of their career is near impossible. And it's kind of just it's like a tale as old as time, but a tale that needs to modernize with the times, because this story is going to happen over and over and over when you've got a historical business model of, of talent grooming, of talent incubation that in exchange for giving you a runway, they capture the bulk of the margin of your entire career versus the democracy of social media I talked about, the you know ease and accessibility of internet fame and how now anymore one's own success is so much less contingent upon these super controlling media companies that used to be the only way anybody would get a shot. Um, beyond that, I want to talk a little bit too about the deal they were offered and um, why it matters and how intellectual property is kind of the nucleus of the conversation in terms of uh, Dave, what Dave from Barstool Sports said on his podcast and what Erica Nardini said on her podcast, who's the CEO of Barstool. I had no idea there was a female CEO of Barstool. Obviously, I support that. So Caller Daddy is a podcast that came out in October 2018, I think that the hosts are two former best friends and roommates named Alex and Sophia. They're beautiful. They're funny. They're young. They are, more importantly, uncensored. What makes this podcast different from other sex and dating podcasts is it is detailed. It is, for lack of a better word, raunchy. It is, I think a lot of its success is based on the shock value of the level of detail that they will go into about their own sex lives. And I don't mean in like the I'm Samantha, like, you know, blowing the postal guy. Like, yeah, that was shocking on HBO, whatever. I mean, like provocative doesn't do it justice. Like, you know, the the what's the phrase? Like somebody clutching their pearls. Like, I don't think that your average semi-conservative Karen would clutch their pearls so much as need to clutch the nearest gurney because they would pass out hearing about concepts like a gluck gluck 9000, which I did have to look up on Urban Dictionary. And to be honest, I'm still totally unclear on. I mean, for Barstool, that makes sense in terms of you want programming, <laughs> programming advertisements. No, you want programming that's ideal for your target audience. And while this is highly anecdotal, I'd imagine given the prevalence of pornography, uh, obviously it's not a bad idea to have two beautiful women that speak about their sex life in an open, highly detailed, exaggerative, and somewhat unemotional manner that you can listen to in a casual manner, like it's Bill Simmons or Joe Rogan on a neutral third-party unpornographic app, but it's going to give you the same type of satisfaction and voyeurism of watching porn. That's like an oversimplification, but it's a similar type of thing where like, you're kind of extracting a lot of the similar value out of it in an audio format and even better, not mired in the guilt of like watching actual porn. You know, if your spouse is like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go work out in the garage and listen to a podcast. I'd assume it's like a deep dive about college football and not a deep throat bonanza with a side of MILF hunter. Like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's tricky to talk about my my point of view on the content of their podcast, because obviously. There is a the, the concepts of objectification and empowerment are forever at odds. 
And depending on a variety of factors and how you perceive a situation, you could make an argument for either. If you've been here a while, if you listen to my True Love Awaits deep dives, you know that the formative years of the times where I would learn about sex, I was in a conservative public school system in church youth groups and went to church camps that utterly shamed, deterred, and made me honestly fearful of talking about or thinking about sex that I've had to dismantle throughout my 20s. I am not a sex negative person. I am not a slut shamer. I am far from a person that, you know, society already gives women a shell that they actively encourage and reward them if they crawl into. And I certainly don't want to be a person that encourages them to crawl farther. I'm not Pollyanna. These things aren't things I haven't heard before. The, the difference with this podcast is, and why I think it's really successful, is the shock value of what they say to the public. Because the type of stuff they start to talk about are conversations I've gotten into you know, having wine with women on our like fourth bottle when it like goes there and it's like the best part of the night and you're pissed because they're closing up and you're like, oh, we just got to the good stuff. But to hear people saying it at 7 a.m., you know, on your generic third party iPhone podcast app, it's like, you know, choosing between, you know, you wake up, do you listen to NPR's Up First or do you get it up first? It's very hard for me to not make like full on Samantha Jones jokes right now. Not my best work, but certainly better than Lawrence of My Labia, which is a joke that will forever haunt me from Sex and the City 2 that only really rivals that of Abu Dhabi Do when Miranda, respected attorney and feminist, briefly turned into Daphne Blake for a moment to tell a joke so bad that for the only time in my life I actually wished I was watching Scooby-Doo with Freddie Prinze Jr. But anyway, I know this doesn't have to do with like the press controversy, but I think it's an interesting piece of the discussion because it's hard to talk about without giving my opinion on the subject matter, even though my argument ultimately is going to be the subject matter is irrelevant to why this story is interesting. But as a podcaster myself, I'd be lying if I wasn't constantly examining the X factor of what makes somebody achieve exponential success in this category. And I've probably talked shit about Call Our Daddy before. Like I, the first time I li listened to it, I was like, what just happened? I, 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 the problem was too, I listened to an episode where they were talking, like they were telling young women where to go around the office, how to sneak around in different ways to send nudes at work without getting caught. That is not what I want for women in the workforce. That is not what I want out of an employee. That is, it's that sort of thing that, I don't know, it's like I'm on board with empowerment and openness, but laced with immaturity and giving bad advice that could get you fired and worse I don't know. We've been working. We, we we've been working so hard to close the gender pay gap. We 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 work hard to allow performance to speak more than gender. All I want is for somebody who works with me to not gauge if they want to have sex with me or not, or not, or to allow my body to be able to exist without a male's opinion on it. Like we want all of these things that allow us to operate in the workplace as men do, agnostically from our sexuality, but in giving people advice that asks them to lean into it. I don't know. I, I like unless I completely misunderstood Sheryl Sandberg's lean in and she actually meant lean into your nearest colleague and ask if they want to watch you touch your elbows behind your back. Like, I don't know. Is it my style of uh, sexual rhetoric? No, but it doesn't mean it's wrong and it doesn't mean it can't be appreciated for entertainment value. And I think as with anything, things that you don't agree with or you don't understand are allowed to exist. They're allowed to have fans. They're allowed to have audiences and they're allowed to be popular and it doesn't threaten anything you are or you believe. Um, the premise of the show is that by calling her daddy, the female in the relationship wears the pants. They are the one who makes the calls. They take control during sex. Like 
I love what they stand for in terms of like prom- promoting that women should be able to be open and honest about their sexuality. I like the mission of destigmatizing com- com- like conversation about casual sex like that you know it's it's 2020 like we don't need to be operating from a place of extremely archaic gender norms and i don't want women to be shamed or judged for sharing their sexual experiences in theory i am on board in practice i jump ship not because i don't think they're good at their job i don't think that they're stupid i don't think that they're doing anything wrong from an entertainment standpoint but to me the problem isn't that they're trying to destigmatize female desire at all Quite the opposite. My problem is the promotion of women molding themselves only to the desire of the stereotypical male gaze. And I think this conversation gets tricky because it's it's like the I don't think that women who talk about sex in a certain manner are misogynist. I think that women who talk about sex in this incredibly graphic male dominated way don't realize that the way they speak about sex is a product of a misogynistic lexicon that men created who are allegedly allowed to talk about sex when women never have been. And from that angle, uh, it's hard for me to frame it as female empowerment because I, to me, it's thinly veiled misogyny. That isn't actually their fault, though. The entire rhetoric surrounding sex is male-focused, male-created, male-driven, to the point where females don't even have the language or metaphors or terminology that present it in a more balanced manner. And I was actually reading a really interesting piece about, well, it was like actually in Allure's. Yeah, I think it was in Allure. And they were talking about how when you think about slang or colloquialisms to openly or comedically talk about sex, that people are like, zero fox, zero filter, like, let's go there. Um, Actually, terms like banging, like slamming, or to quote an art piece called Bravo Summerhouse, blasting, like, those come from the perspective of what a dominant male does and not the soft tissue it's being done to. And I think I feel frustrated when I see women uphold and reinforce standards for women to be these uncomplicated, noncommittal, wildly experimental sex goddesses that claim that it's all about prioritizing their desire. But really, I hear them prioritizing their desirability. But here's the thing. They, they can speak from their perspective. They can speak from their truth. and. My opinion, it's like the difference is what what I'm hearing. It's like they they're saying what they're saying and I'm hearing what I'm hearing. And both are based on our own experiences and philosophies. So neither are wrong. Um, But given that I'm sure they'd even hear my argument and like pity me, you know what I mean? Like I'm the repressed one. I just want to make an argument from the other side of a person that is more reserved in terms of it's not about it's not that I'm like not fun or cool or adventurous. It's it's that well, as you know, I don't I, I don't think women who have more conservative backgrounds and who went through like a major era of sex shaming, like really have a voice in media that bring to light that um, a lot of people that are uncomfortable with sex aren't these like unfun, lame like June Cleaver types that need to loosen up a few buttons. A lot of people's rejection of open and graphic sexual talk is less from a place of their own judgment and more from a place of their complete discomfort with the subject matter. That's a result of their upbringing, their reference group, the circles that they're in do not allow space for that. And I think that From that angle, you can see podcasts like this is important in terms of engaging in a dialogue that women aren't allowed to have elsewhere. But speaking from my own experience, my issue with it 
always was that I, I think back to when I was in the dating world and I, you know, if I had heard these things, if nobody around me was talking about sex and I went to a podcast to learn about it and therefore I was kind of like, oh, okay, well, I don't know. No one talks about this. So I guess this is normal. Like, I guess this is what's required to win a man's interest. And as a person with so little knowledge and experience, like, you know, if I was in high school, college, I would have been like, okay, I guess this is what I need to do. Fake it till I make it, repress my emotions, do things I'm not comfortable with and prioritize my performance in the bedroom over my emotional well-being. And that is what I don't want happening to people that are uneducated about sex. But alas, that is not caller daddy's problem. Um, I worry for young women who haven't broken from their uneducated and inexperienced adolescents that are using this as a vehicle to have the conversations they can't have with the people in their life who repress sexual discussion. But on the flip side, the people that are comfortable with and ready to explore their sexuality healthily, this is a great outlet for them to engage in the unfiltered dialogue that maybe they want to be having, but it's not always acceptable for women to do so. And we, we should be able to talk how we want to. I, anyways, I guess what I'm saying is the reason Call Her Daddy, in my opinion, is wildly successful is the same reason why it could be deemed wildly problematic. The issue is not necessarily the people who talk about sex in a controversial way. The issue is that there's a huge, huge disconnect in society between the the unwillingness and the taboo nature of people to talk openly and honestly about sex. There's a disconnect between that and the internet's complete, utter, open, easy access to hardcore, explicit, over-exaggerated, oversized, female stereotype-fueled pornography at all times. And my point is, People can talk about it in whatever way they want. They don't even know that the way they're talking about it, even if under the guise of female empowerment, is completely male-driven. And, and because nobody like, but no, because nobody's having these conversations, because women are shamed for talking about sex, and I know people in you know urban secular markets are going to be like, what are you talking about? But most of the country is very, very actively discouraged from having a lot of these conversations in their upbringing that you might abandon as you get older or you might not. But as a result, the conversation isn't informing the entertainment. The entertainment informs the conversation. The entertainment is for men, it's by men, and it's a dystopian universe where women are treated like blow-up dolls and not one that I want to be vastly promoted among young women as that being their expectation. So anyway, any of the daddy gang, I love you. I respect you. I know it's fun and entertaining and light, and it doesn't need to be taken as anything deeper than that. I just have to give you my two cents because I want to. I want people to be sex positive, but I also want to challenge the language used and to make it more favorable toward females. I just want people to have real expectations, to not be held to impossible standards, to not have men's brains be short-circuited by the in insanity of this exaggerated porn world versus what it is in real life. I just, you know, when these types of conversations start to interfere with what's way more important in a long-term relationship, which, you know, is emotional intimacy, trust, and the r respect and acknowledgement that needs need to be met mutually. And in the right, healthy relationship, you should be able to communicate those very clearly and have those honored by your partner. And um, I'll get off my soapbox there. I just, you know, I I was doing research and trying to listen to some other stuff. And a lot of it I laughed and I found that they were very funny. But I hate stuff that 
I'll just I, I, it, I need to like I need to do a past life regression. The things that the things that make my blood boil, I don't like I can't even find the source of sometimes. Um, and I feel like I've worked through a lot of my youth pastor issues, you know, like I don't have daddy issues. I guess I have call her daddy issues when I don't have regular daddy issues. Um, but anyway, I, I heard them say something like, if you, if you don't S your man's D, you know, in case my mother's listening, um, somebody else will, you know, to threaten women to give men that kind of license and power and that we're just telling women we should expect men to cheat if we don't fulfill their sexual desires is a level of problematic I can't even take on right now. That isn't wearing the pants. That isn't flipping gender norms on their head. That isn't taking control. That isn't call her daddy. That's like text your mommy and have her remind you of the self-respecting woman that you are because to enter into a relationship with the expectation that a man can and will cheat. And beyond that, it's excusable unless your sexual performance is at a certain level it is, is, is spewing bullshit to the masses that I can't handle. It is a geyser of nonsense. It is old, <laughs> old unfaithful, if you will. It, it's like I, I cannot handle that messaging being like super soaked to the population and like people, whether consciously or not, absorb that and take it with them. And that is where I get a little bit upset. But again, it's not about that. Okay, we're going to move on. But yeah, Caller Daddy's been insanely successful. It has like, I, it might have over 100,000 iTunes reviews. It's always number one. Uh, most podcasts, like I said, in the top 2%, according to Libsyn, are at at least 20,000 downloads an episode. That's That's in and of itself a really hard place to get to. Really, really successful ones are in the hundreds of thousands. Caller Daddy's in the millions. Um, it is their most successful program. I don't know the demographic split. My assumption has always been that it's largely male, but I do know that it has obviously a, a large amount of female fans. What I wonder is in a world where podcasts actually are pretty gender targeted, I can't help but wonder if capturing both male and female attention is a part of the success of this. And if so, obviously it's a formula that works. I think when I said that I think the disconnect between like our access to like this crazy depiction of sexuality and our unwillingness to talk about it is both the problem and the reason for its success to the I spoke to the problem piece to the success piece. It's like, well, there, that world exists and we have access to it before. We're not going to talk about it. Somebody needs to. And these people are. And that's why they're brilliant, because the importance here is being ob objective about not if it has the right to be successful, but the fact that it just is and something they're doing is working. And what I think that they're doing is working is going there, is having unfiltered conversations that no one else is going to have, is closing that gap between the wild fantasy world of sex and the real world of boring people that won't talk about it. And even though it's not their fault that there's inherent misogyny in the lexicon of the way we even talk about sex, I just think that, that like it's worth noting that its popularity is both the problem and the solution. <laughs> Like, did I have no idea if that makes any sense, um, but whatever. It wouldn't be me if I didn't put in my needless two cents. This is my show after all. And coincidentally, how much my show is made relative to theirs, if you really want. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but I the, like, OK, so let's OK, let me let me get back on track. So, yes, Caller Daddy, they it was started by two best friends. They I think I don't know, maybe did like a month or a few episodes or something. I'm not sure. And they were approached by Barstool. And according to the New York Times, it jumped from 12,000 downloads to 2 million downloads in just two months. 
and top the charts. It's one of the top 20 most popular on Apple podcasts. So the podcast is owned by Barstool. And Alex and Sophia were like best friends and roommates that started Call Her Daddy, got involved with Barstool. They were completely unknown at the time. And when Barstool signed Call Her Daddy, they also got the copyright to it. So legally, Call Her Daddy belongs to Barstool and not Alexandra and Sophia. And Erica Nardini does a much better job than I ever could explaining the importance of intellectual property here. But she gave an example that's what was on her podcast, Token CEO, by the way. If I would like stop here, if you haven't listened to the most recent episode of Call Her Daddy, which is where Dave, the head of Barstool, tells his side of the story. That's like the context you need. I'll summarize some of it, but I think it's better hearing it from him. And if you want to hear more about the intellectual property piece, you can listen to Erica. But yes, yeah, so Erica, the example she used in the media world, that's a simple one in terms of the relationship between barstool and the brand call her daddy is like um comedy central is a tv network owned by viacom so the shows on comedy central are owned by comedy central who's owned by viacom and have nothing to do with the talent um john stewart dave Chappelle, you know stephen colbert like the talent from comedy central has no ownership or stake in comedy central they were employed by it when you write a show when you sell a script you do just that you sell it to a network, to a production company, whatever it is. And the rights of people's work in the entertainment field, it's pretty common that it's owned by an entity that is not the person and that the financial gain, while you get a sale price one time, it's growth and performance, you're not necessarily compensated in a meaningful way, or at least you're not capturing the bulk of the margin. The person who bought it is, the owner is. And most enter- most contracts of any entertainment form, I'm, I need a better word than entertainment, any like media or medium, they are designed for transfer of ownership and transfer of copyright. I wrote and ideated in the, 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 the concept of Twinkle Twinkle Social Media Star. Like it is all, everything from my brain in a physical book. I do not own any of it. I just get 15% of the sales. It's owned by the, the publisher. It's that's just like what it is. And that's kind of where this conversation will always come in of like a lot of when the Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun drama came up and she's, you know, a big proponent of artists owning their work. And like I would love for this ancient business model to be revisited in terms of how art ownership is structured. And I think, you know, it is what it is as an argument to maintain the problematic status quo and people should be pushing back on what doesn't seem fair that is kind of indoctrinated. But um, so I don't say it's normal to say like people shouldn't push back on it. I just say it's normal to say that like Barstool wasn't trying to fuck them over. It, it was it's pretty uh, run of the mill. And since, you know, music, publishing, TV, radio, like any any broader media entity that's like bringing you on or that's legitimizing or publishing, distributing your work, it's not wrong of them to go with this very standard business model of you transfer copyright and ownership to us, you sell it to us, we give you a cut of it or we pay you one time. But, you know, if we're going to put all of the muscle behind it, if we're going to do all of the work to distribute it, whatever, it is ours. Um, And there are workarounds there. You can, you know, self-publish. You can have a podcast instead of try to be on the radio. You, You know what I mean? There's we live in a world now where fortunately you can circumvent 
a lot of the bureaucratic nonsense that's kind of just, you know, grandfathered into every industry over time. But it's just it's not shocking that if you are choosing to be an employee of a company, that you are being hired to build somebody else's brand, not your own. You can work toward a common goal. You can be a good teammate. But at the end of the day, you don't have ownership of what you create. If you're a salaried employee, your employer does. And this kind of goes back to, like, I, I joked about on the podcast before that my icebreaker fun fact is that my grandfather invented the ice maker. To clarify, there was like some dude in the 1800s named John Gorey that he like made an ice machine. What I, he, my grandfather has like countless um, patents. I have a book of them in the refrigeration category in terms of in 1965, Frigidaire was the first company to invent an apparatus for the in-home consumer fridge that dispensed ice and water outside the door so you didn't have to go inside of it or use an ice tray. So when I say like the modern kitchen ice maker, I don't mean like ice in general. But the the point being, he, you know, and I whenever I say that, people are like, oh, do you like low-key have secret money? And I'm like, no, not, not even close. It, it, my family doesn't get a cut of every modern ice maker sold because his name is on the patent. Because you know whose name is above his on the patent? You know whose name comes up if you Google it? It's Frigidaire. He's an engineer that was an employee of a company, and therefore the company holds and enforces and makes money off of their patents. So it's a funny thing where like what a cool invention that at the time they didn't even know would be adopted into the marketplace at the time ice being in your home and so readily available in your fridge just was not like a regular need in the American household. And it's kind of interesting even just thinking about something totally separate, but it being relevant in that, yeah, he doesn't get any of the glory or the, you know, long term income, but if he had just, you know, in his garage figured this out and like tried to pitch it and sell it to people without the resources of a huge company to A, get the patent through and B, to normalize, commercialize and distribute it. Like, would it be a thing? Go, you know, you go to Europe. No, there's no ice. It's like the, the the entire experience of trying to get a Diet Coke in Europe is like it's like being at a friend's house with F.U. second fridge money. And you're thirsty and they send you to the garage and they tell you you they have soda and you're very excited only to get to the garage and realize they have 12 packs stacked on top of each other, but none have been refrigerated. And then instead of enjoying a nice, cool, refreshing beverage, you're left with a there's a certain corrosiveness about a lukewarm, effervescent beverage that leaves me worse off than I, I came, you know. Uh, is, <laughs> is there anything douchier being like you ever had a soda in Europe? Ugh, what a drag. You know what I mean? What my point is, what it seems so insane here to like elect to have a warm beverage, but most places don't even see that as remotely being a necessity. And there was an element of value that had to be created. And could that have been done without the resources behind the company? Well, there's so many examples you could give of like, if you create something, what is yours versus what is the resources and runway and distribution and access and audience that another entity can provide you and where's the value split there and when Sophia and Alex sign their show over to Barstool I mean think about it you're if you don't have a job you're in like your early to mid 20s you're living in New York it's expensive you probably have like a standard job maybe like of course it's shiny and exciting and interesting to think of like doing something kind of like that in the entertainment space. They start this podcast. They have a huge opportunity from a big, very well-known company and brand. Like, 
I I get it. Like this, their offer was so, so good for two people that had never done this before. And as I explained last episode, it took me 18 months to monetize this podcast in like a meaningful way where where I'd consider it a source of serious income. It was so much free work. And I I equivalize those two situations because they weren't famous when they started their podcast. I'm still not famous, but I definitely was less so when I started my podcast. And I didn't have the opportunity to have a network pick me up from the beginning, but I had opportunities to be picked up along the way. And what I noticed is that unlike my book contract, which I, you know, gave away the entire thing and I only get royalties and I had very little transparency or visibility into the sales and distribution process, because again, not mine, anything I do creatively is likely to fall under that sort of structure. Podcasting, you can make fun of people having podcasts all you want, but it is amazing because what it is, is it's on-demand radio with full creative freedom where the creator, not the network, captures not only the bulk of the revenue, but almost all of it. And that's also why YouTube is so wonderful. The modern world allows us to monetize virtually unknown personalities and to make something of ourselves, independent of the resources, money, or connections that media companies can provide and thus hang over people's heads in order to get them to sign these incredibly unfavorable contracts. Because we once lived in a world where in the absence of those things, you wouldn't make it. You had no choice. And in today's world, that still happens like that. There is such a ceiling in so many industries that I would sign a lot of those contracts, too. But podcasting is a weird industry that kind of circumvents that whole process. And if you can get your podcast to a level of, of popularity on your own, it can be a very lucrative venture. But instead, they signed a salary deal with a small bonus structure, which for a podcast is not normal. I don't know many people who are salaried and have podcasts. Anyway, so they get signed to Barstool. The agreement is a three-year contract with each of them getting a $70,000 a year salary and $2,500 per 10% audience increase. What's crazy is that their audience was so above and beyond overperformed what anybody was expecting that netted out to about a half million dollars per person in their first year. A big part of this controversy is people's frustration with them acting like they're poor. It's like, who knows when that money came? I'm sh- I am I think, too, like a lot of our personalities kind of operate from like, I guess there's a difference between like acting poor and, that, and just like not acting rich. Like, do I like I'm in a dual income household. I live well. But I operate like I would never like I am self-employed. I have very inconsistent income. I have unpredictable income. I have income that can be ripped out from under me at any given second. And I operate from a place of like scarcity almost. And that's why I talk about how I can't believe how expensive things are, how I don't like buy furniture new, how I don't like I don't understand luxurious travel. Like I've been working my ass off for so long and I just look around at the world and how people must have accumulated so much money to be able to spend it on passing items that like I don't even understand how they afford the way they live. I'm almost obsessed with money in that way of like it just I feel like everything I look at, it's like no matter how much progress I make, I just still feel like the things that I want to be doing just seem needlessly expensive for what they are. Yet I see everybody else doing them and I'm like, will I ever feel closer to feeling like I'm a person 
who thinks it's like reasonable to buy a golden goose sneaker. They're so cute, so dirty. But I did just buy jeans that looked like a Wolverine had its way with them. Um, so who am I to talk? But when I talk about how things are expensive and not having money for them, it's not because I'm broke. It's because I very conservatively approach money based on the nature of my job. And I have been very, very broke before. And I'm very aware of what it's like and not being that way and not spending in a way that gets me to that place. So it's like, I think that sometimes people that talk about money like frugally, it's not that they don't have any, it's that they have a very specific way that they view money and a very, a lot of opinions on how other people spend theirs that doesn't really add up in the absence of raging credit card debt. Um, when was it? Sorry, I went off on a tangent. But like, I guess what I, a lot of people were really mad about the poor thing. And my argument would be, you don't know when they got those bonuses because $70,000 is what I was making in New York my first year out of school. And I did, I went through my checking account every two weeks. And was I like going out to dinner and stuff? Yeah, but I wasn't living extravagantly at all. Rent is a fortune. Life is a fortune. It's just like an expensive market. And that's a choice you make when you live there. But $70,000 in New York City, while fine for, you know, 23-year-olds, is actually the farthest thing from being something where you'd have a lot of disposable income left over, especially when they're running in entertainment and media circles where they probably want to be doing things with people that have money and they feel like so bottom of the barrel. So making just their salary and knowing that sometimes bonuses aren't even paid out. If if they're paid out, it's like a quarterly basis, best case scenario. It might be half year. It might have been year end. And $70,000 is a great salary, and I'm not discounting it at all. But in New York City, it's not like you're rolling in it. So were they maybe exaggerating? Was there a hyperbolic element? I'm sure. But I highly doubt that they got, saw any of those bonuses early on when people fell in love with the show and probably the bulk of when they were talking about how poor they are. Do I listen to the show? No. But so I don't know if they were, you know, as of February, they were still complaining, you know, crying poverty, which is, you know, ridiculous if so, because a half a million dollars, like, holy shit, like, that's a lot of money um, to be guaranteed as an employee. Like, again, it's not chump change, but here's where it's interesting. Well, okay, so specifically, the deal brought their first year earnings to $461,000 for Franklin, uh, Sophia, and $506,000 for Alex. Um, and Alex had, she's the blonde one, had successfully negotiated for more money six months into their contract, arguing that she did more of the work and edited the show. Fans online have speculated that this is part of the betrayal that Franklin is referring to. I just found a BuzzFeed article. That's what I'm reading. Um Okay, so that's an important thing to note is that six months in, Alex went and did some renegotiation, which honestly makes sense if she did the editing. The podcasters I know that are co-hosts, they split the work because, yes, editing is part of, a big part of it, but so is procuring all of the ads, doing all of the marketing, handling all of the like social media and Facebook stuff, uh, booking guests. There's so many different tiny jobs, and most people split them 50-50. But most people are independent, and so they're doing all the jobs that a network's resources are being put toward if you're at a network, and they were with Barstool. I'm actually shocked that she even did the editing, because normally you would just, like, send in the audio file and maybe say a timestamp or two that you want taken out. Um, but I don't think it's crazy for her to argue for a little bit more money if she's doing more work and— Sophia is literally not. If she's just coming in and talking and not doing anything else, not putting in any, you know— marketing efforts or whatever but clearly i think this was this is like the start of the rift and became ultimately a big issue okay so that's what they sign the podcast absolutely takes off like i said earlier you know 12,000 downloads to 2 million 
They make they, they get more downloads than any Barstool program, and they absolutely crush it, like kind of out of nowhere. The ad space on those podcasts is incredibly valuable because just like eyes are valuable on TV and TV ratings are the currency for which ad, ads are bought on television, ears are valuable in podcasts and ears serve as the currency for the value of the ad space on a podcast. So the more ears, the more money you can get. And when you're an independent podcaster, like most people, you capture the bulk of that money and you just give a cut, whether it's, you know, 15, 20, 30 percent to maybe an ad network that procures ads for you in a more streamlined manner. Or if you do them privately, you'd capture all of it outside of like brokerage fees. And I just want to put this into perspective because I saw so many people calling them greedy and bratty and like acting like they were these petulant children who had no right to be asking for more money. It's like, okay, they were literally under contract. Are you, you know, the point of a contract is to fulfill it. They were given a fair deal for who they were at the beginning. They no longer were those people. The success was so, it was exponential to what they ever thought it would be. And my assumption is when, especially when you get more famous and you align with, you know, agents and managers and you get more people involved. And Sophia having a boyfriend in show business, Peter Nelson, who is an executive vice president at HBO Sports, who understands media. When they got to a certain level and realized the value of their podcast real estate, when they, they realized the share that they were getting and they realized that Barstool was the bulk of their podcast revenue was from the two of them. Yet they were making such a small share of the income, despite being the ones doing the work. The New York Times said this. I thought they said this well. Um, Taylor Lawrence wrote this article, How the Call Her Daddy Feud Boiled Over. And it said, in the past month, Call Her Daddy, the Call Her Daddy empire has tumbled, exposing the inevitable issues media companies face when their star employees morph into powerful influencers. This controversy is starting to show some of the macro issues in the media business built around these personalities, said Blake Robbins, a partner at Ludlow Ventures, a VC firm. It's the pull of influencers outgrowing the media brands that invested in their careers. And to put this into perspective, when Dave Portnoy went on the podcast last week, the head of Barstool, and talked about his side of the story, he said that and they haven't done an episode, I don't think in like four or five weeks. He said he loses around $100,000 per episode in ad revenue when they don't show up to work, that they are contractually bound to show up for, that he can technically sue them for not fulfilling. I think the mentality of influencers that outgrow the media companies that groomed them for success is you sign these contracts before you understand how the industry works and that there's different routes to get what you're doing on the map. And if what I imagine happened is they looked at their peers in the industry who are making money hand over fist when they're locked into a pretty fixed salary situation with relative to the value they're bringing to the company, a pretty low bonus structure, and their income is so disproportionate to what Barstool is earning off of them. And th this is where it gets tricky because I think any of us would argue for our value in that case. I think any of us, if we were a runaway hit, you know, could they have known that when Barstool set up the contract? No. But when that became the reality, I think it's totally valid to revisit. And I'll explain in a little bit like what if they didn't go with like a salary network that owned their IP, what this would look like. But to give you a small example of what this would look like. So, OK, I'm independent. 
to quote Myra from The Princess Diaries, let's say miracles happen and I get anywhere close to Caller Daddy's downloads. If, if I even got half of them, I'd blow this popsicle stand and get myself a nice vacation. So they started the podcast before bringing it to Barstool and Barstool approached them. I started this also without anybody involved. I stayed that way. If they had stayed that way, and let's say theoretically, they were able to garner the number of downloads without Barstool, which again, I do not think is possible just based on the disproportionate nature of their audience relative to the rest of like a podcast growth trajectory for non-famous people. It's a weird middle ground because typically you're a non-famous person with not a big platform and you grow through the podcast or you're a famous person with a big platform and you make money right out the gate. Right out the gate, you're likely to join a network who's going to streamline a lot of the minutia for you because you don't want to like, you know, figure out what mic to use and how to edit audio. But one of those networks is not going to take you on if you're unknown talent and you have no audience. So this was a weird situation where a huge, huge network or media company with a huge existing audience that was perfect for their subject matter agreed to take them on. And what I, while I honestly, I think I said this before, I've I've never heard of being salaried um, in the podcast world because typically a podcast is just an, it's an independent venture. And even if you partner, you're at most a contractor, at least you just, it's just a casual revenue share. And you have full ownership, but Barstool in having a whole portfolio of successful podcasts from employees of their media company, of course, they're going to go this route. What I imagine, too, is that they saw a lot of return on this with another successful show they have with women with Chicks in the Office that was around before Caller Daddy, I think a year or two before Caller Daddy, who I love and I think is a great show. And I think they are really talented hosts. And it's very cool to be plucked from a corporate job and be like, you should be the face of this. You should be the voice of this. And I'm sure at the time you're like, hell yeah, let's try this out. Chicks in the Office is still doing very well. And I'm hoping they were able to renegotiate as well of what I'm assuming was just them doing this on the side as a salary position. It worked and then they did more of it. And their their downloads are incredibly strong. Um, but they're more in a range of what maybe barstool or the talent would think was somewhat fair and that at you know the end of the term they'll renegotiate more aligned with their current value which is typically pretty normal but x like exponential success is kind of like a different ball game where these girls became worth so much money and i I, again i think that the the, even the hundred thousand dollars per episode that um dave quoted on his uh the most recent episode of call her daddy is the revenue he's losing is conservative and it's low. I don't think he's really saying how much they make from each episode. But okay, to just put this into perspective. So let's say I'm on the same level as Call Her Daddy with downloads and we're chatting and I'm like, yeah, so, you know, outside of the 15% I pay, you know, in broker fees or whatever, like there's always some fees associated. I make 85% of my ad revenue. So if I generated $5.2 million, I'd be making what, 4.4, I'd pocket 4.4 million of it. And we have the same job. So for me to be making 85% at $4.4 million of that 5.2 million based on the structure of my podcast's rev share and ownership, for them to apples to apples look at that and be making $500,000 
Would your head not spin looking at your industry peers who are not in employment-based situations and see that you have the same job? And while I would make 85% of $5.2 million, they're making 9.6% of $5.2 million. Obviously, their co-host, I it's probably the only benefit of not having a co-host is I don't have to split money, but they, so, you know, collectively around 20%. So yes, $500,000 is a great salary by any terms for anyone in the world. It, it, that, it, that is serious money, but okay, so it'd be them being independent like me is not realistic for their size. But let's say they went with a Wondery who is the company that allegedly Peter Nelson was negotiating with, like behind their back, back of the napkin. Let's do that math. Okay, first we have one sponsor this week, and I want to kind of explain a little bit of context, and then we'll move on with the rest of the episode. This is a different category than I usually venture into, and it's something I'm trying that I'm in the process of that I am not like at the end of the results and can tell you a definitive outcome, but my friends at Girls Gotta Eat, they endorsed it. I got interested. I've been having an issue with this, and therefore I'm trying it, and I'm telling you about it and getting you a discount code because I know you've heard about it. In the event you want to join me in my journey, the company is called Nutrafol. Nutrafol is a supplement with proprietary ingredients that are designed to help you grow thicker, stronger hair without lasers or chemicals. And it's kind of, it's so I'm interested in this, um, trying this out because kind of like, you know, you can pile on makeup your whole life, or you can also make sure you prioritize skincare to get at the root cause and to, you know, take on something preventatively. And my hair is getting so much thinner and I'm not totally sure what to do about it. So yeah, this is something I want to try out because I think there's a lot of nonsense, like grow hair quick, you know, schemes that are more about hair length, but this is more about hair strength and thickness. And that's what I'm interested in more than anything. When I started doing live shows and stuff and was getting my hair professionally done, it was constantly being recommended to me to like put in a halo hair extension because there was like thinning and just to make it look fuller. But I, but I hate wearing it. Those like, I don't know, it's, it's too high maintenance. It doesn't feel like me. I would just rather find a solution for my hair to be in you know better shape overall. And that's when I kind of started doing a lot of research on this um, earlier in the winter. Obviously, I saw, you know, 80 percent of women. Um, saw improved hair growth and thickness in a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study by a board-certified dermatologist. And, you know, I love data. And I think that hearing those results and, um, you know, 70% of women seeing those improvements in just 90 days is incredibly compelling. And uh, I am in the middle of it right now, so I can't tell you definitively, but I'm excited to see what happens. Beyond that, don't listen to me. You know, Brooklyn Blonde endorses them, and I trust her with my life. So, <laughs> um, I yeah, I honestly am really looking forward to seeing if this helps. And I'm all about addressing root causes and not symptoms. Um, and that is a good play on words, and I hope they are using that in their marketing. Literal root causes. But anyway, you can grow thicker, healthier hair and support Be There in 5 by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code Be There in 5 to get 20% off, which is actually... I, you know, I coupon cabined it up. This is, this is a very solid offer, especially for this product. This is a higher price point than I usually venture into, but it's kind of impossible to not read more about it and not be incredibly intrigued. So just consider. So with code be there in five, you can get 20% off. You can get free shipping on every order at Nutrafol.com promo code be there in five. Just so I don't know if the spelling's clear. It's N-U-T-R-A-F. O L 
BeTheHairStylist.com, promo code BeTheIron5, for hair as strong as you are. And let me know what you think. I, I'm genuinely interested. I'm really just going for Denise Richards as Ross Geller's cousin in that Friends episode, you know? I-Y-K-Y-K. Mm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't love that acronym. Okay, thanks to Nutrafol. Now back to the episode. No more ads. Okay, so like I said, if they went with a Wondery, let's just say, okay, best case scenario, they're, I don't know, keeping 90%, which they might have the leverage to negotiate, honestly, because 10% of their ad revenue would generate a lot of revenue for an ad network. So if they went to a place like Wondery, so there, then there's podcast networks like Wondery, Podcast One, uh, Gimlet, Midroll. They're, you, they're hard to get accepted to. They're a curated list of podcasts. They handle um, and they negotiate, broker, procure your ads and give you all of the scripts and do all of the billing. And it, they, you know, probably do like different marketing and press opportunities in between podcasts so you, they can benefit from each other's audiences. Like I said last week, most podcasts are with a podcast network who does a ton of the work for them. It takes a lot of the minutia off your plate. And they do mo- like the production, editing, sound mastering, all that. I'm, I, when I started my podcast, I was unknown. And none of those networks would have taken me on because there's no way to project my success level. And I also was willing to figure out and research all that minutia myself in a way that a busy, famous, well-known person with a big audience to leverage, they wouldn't do. Because when you're more successful and you make money and you're busier, it's not efficient to teach yourself things. It's efficient to outsource things. But when you're, you know, bootstrapped trying to build your own thing, I think you're insane to not do the research and figure it out yourself. Everything is figureoutable to quote Marie Forleo. But what's weird about podcast networks is that they're incredibly efficient ways for celebrities, existing famous people, influencers to tack on another revenue stream to their portfolio, to have another touch point, someone else automated and does all the work in exchange. They So based on the conversations I've had with a lot of different podcast networks, the worst revenue share I've heard is 50%. But that's for a network that does that has a lot of marketing muscle that does a ton of promotion that has kind of a, you know, equity with the network name itself and also has a lot of ability to kind of cross pollinate with the strong roster of shows they have within it. So there's, you know, some have more benefits than others. Some are really just procuring ads and not doing any editing or production, whereas some are like full 360 in-house you, you know, record there, they send you equipment, you send them the episode, they edit it, they master it, they upload it, they do the description, like all of it. So yeah, there's a spectrum of what they can handle for you. And I'd say the more involved ones and the bigger names try to get you to do a 50-50 rev share, which I would never do. Um, And, you know, I'd say the smallest I've ever heard is like 20% um, for a less involved network on the production side. I'm just going to say let's meet in the middle, even though I think they have the type of leverage to keep like 80, 85, 90% uh, of ad revenue at a company like a Wondery. Let's just even say they were a normal podcast that had to fork over 30%, in which case, you know, a network would help you with your audience size in a way that in, in being independent, like I said, the episode, the example before the ad. Um, with the 85%. But with a network like Wondery, let's just say worst case, they had to fork over 30%. Um, the 
if they brought in $5.2 million, let's just say they were able to capture that audience, the they would keep $3.6 million divided by two, which is $1.8 million. So, sure, $500,000 is an unbelievable salary, for, like I said, for anybody by normal terms. But it's, it's, it's so important to not just cry greedy when it's entirely subjective um, because it's, it's not about what they deserve. It's about what they're delivering. And in their, you know, from their perspective, right now, in getting paid $500,000, they are leaving $1.3 million on the table each. I mean, think about it. Like, and that, I think, is, again, conservative. And they, in that instance, not only would they be making an incremental $1.3 million in perhaps the worst case scenario of an ad network's business structure, they'd also own the IP and they'd also be milking Call Her Daddy for all it's worth in so many more digital formats, in merch, in books, in a TV deal, whatever the hell it is, in, in speaking, in live shows. They, they, there is so much more income you can generate from a brand name both actively and passively by having it, you know, present in different categories. So fans can engage with your brand at a variety of touch points. This is why intellectual property is so important. It's so lucrative. It allows you to diversify your income. It allows you to have a bigger footprint and it allows you to capitalize on what is perhaps the thing with the most purchase power, which the the inclination uh, of a fan to spend their money on something that they wholly align with, believe in and love and that releases limited edition items of something that means something to them more than any standard brand might. But I'll get into that later. So when you think about, you know, OK, them, their, their $70,000 deal is fair at the beginning for who they were, but they grew far above and beyond anything anybody expected, generated a substantial percentage of Barstool's overall revenue. And to be in that position and to realize that you are making 10% when you have peers in the industry who are doing the same amount of work as you, but you're bigger than them, but you make 10% and they make, you know, 70, 80, 85, 90, you know, depending. Apparently Alex does the editing, which is shocking to me because if I was giving away that much of a cut to a media company or network, I would not want to lift a finger. A lot of people think they oversimplify podcasting as a business. They're like, you just talk for two hours a week. No, this takes me days by the time all is said and done. And but a a network that you're giving a cut to part of the value exchange there is they are doing all of that minutia for you or should be. So, you know, and time is money. A big driver of me staying independent was, you know, in some of these conversations, it was like you have to my episodes are typically two hours and that's what I want. You know, they wanted me to cut it down to an hour at most, preferably 45 minutes to go from three ads to five ads. And like, I'm not trying to have an ad with a side of podcast. It's like that bad joke. Every man over 50, you know, you're near them at a salad bar and they're like, you want some, you know, salad with that ranch? And it's like, okay, Gary, because your Calzone is so sophisticated. Um, But I I really I just I don't know. That's not what I want to do. And that was that that's been an issue for me. Want people wanting to niche down the category so it's more palatable and easy to explain to advertisers has been an issue. Uh, podcasting is perhaps the most guilty industry of putting women in boxes because the more like stereotypical uh, uh, of a description you can have that makes you simple and easy to understand, the more an ad like an advertiser kind of like gets you. 
and is willing to sponsor your show. But when you have a broad range, but like, God forbid, women have a wide variety of interests. Like, I mean, the nerve. Um, (laughs) It's just a little bit more difficult for them to be like, this show does this, this show does that, this show does that, which is fine. That's their business. And I get it. Marketing is all about birds of a feather. It's about grouping people together with specific psychographic characteristics that are often very much reinforcing stereotypes. Uh, The other issue I've talked about, too, is um, like uh, for the production and editing for my show to come out on a Wednesday, it would have to be turned in by Friday. I talk about pop culture. I talk about current events. I'm talking now on Wednesday. This Barstool stuff started happening Sunday night. We didn't get a uh, response from Sophia till Tuesday. I need to be nimble. So the trade-offs of length and topics and quality and of speed are things I wasn't willing to get up to give up to maintain the integrity of the podcast. Am I a lot smaller, maybe making less money as a result? Sure. Do I think that that's the better long game to stay true to what I actually want this to be? And do I think it's a better idea that when somebody keeps telling you that you're doing something wrong to actually maybe reconsider if you're actually doing something different? Yeah, I think that you need to pay attention to your audience. And I think you need to have a balance of guidance from you know experienced people in the industry but also not be afraid to take a little bit of risk if it means staying more true to what you want your brand to be and i you know had so many jobs and lives in the past decade and i've learned you don't go for the thing that is quick that is shiny you don't go for short-term cash you go for long-term equity but what i'm excited about because it's an argument for um long form it's an argument for a singular host. And it's an argument for the value podcasts bring in terms of serving as a proxy for people taking this as a serious medium that isn't just like a bunch of ex-bachelor contestants with like wanting a hobby, want to like give dating advice, is a story that came out this week that I actually think is really interesting and ironic timing with the caller daddy of it all is um, Joe Rogan, who's had a podcast for 11 years, who has a back catalog of 1500 episodes who has about, uh, I think, 190 million downloads a month. I mean, it's unbelievable. He just got a $100 million licensing deal with Spotify to, for Spotify to use the Joe Rogan Experience brand to license it from him. And I believe they have exclusivity in terms of streaming the show on Spotify, the platform. And while Joe Rogan's downloads, he has a way longer back catalog and there's a ton of value in that. And he has more downloads overall. Most successful podcasts you deem successful that are doing really well, they their download numbers are in like the hundreds of thousands. Call or Daddy, are, they're in the millions. They're at least in the tier of Joe Rogan in terms of being toward the top of the most downloaded podcasts. And the the internet just, you know, singing the praises and, and applauding Joe Rogan, who deserves it, but for his $100 million deal, yet telling Call Her Daddy that they need to be grateful for their $500,000 when they're delivering millions of downloads and millions and millions of dollars in revenue to a company, it's wild. They're not being greedy. They handled a contract negotiation poorly, but I don't like the greedy argument because I think there's a lot of sexism there. There's not a soul who would not be so frustrated by that and feel like this needs to, needed to be revisited. So this first renegotiation happens. Also, important to note with Joe Rogan, it's a licensing deal. What I understand, for, so his show, The Joe Rogan Experience, that's a brand. He has intellectual property. Included in that, you know, obviously is the name of The Joe Rogan Experience and his likeness. But with that, not only comes merch, not only comes episodes going forward, but comes 1,500 episodes in his back catalog 
that are now being licensed to Spotify to monetize that will continue to get millions of downloads. And through what's called dynamic insertion, ads can be automatically added to a person's back catalog in place of evergreen ads or burned in read ads, which are what I do. I actually am right now trying to monetize my back catalog. I'm in the process of doing this because, I don't know, I did 60, 70 some episodes that were f- like free, um, That, but I still worked hard on them and they still exist and they're still providing value. And as those get so many downloads and people go through my stuff, I wish I was getting paid on it. And through dynamic insertion of ads, I can. Obviously, that's like a whole conversation for a different day, but that that is a huge, huge piece of the value. And that's a huge, huge piece of intellectual property in terms of if it's your show and your name and you own it, anybody who monetizes it needs to license it from you. So Joe Rogan is an, a Spotify employee. He's not even a Spotify contractor. He built a brand that he has whole ownership of and that has such value that he is license, licensing it to a company for $100 million just so they can use the name and have something with his brand equity on their platform. And they can therefore bring all of those people streaming and downloading to their platform just from him, his show, his name alone. They're not changing or producing anything about his show. And licensing allows you to leverage an already established company for distribution. Your value is like different than your price. And that that is the valuation of using his name, likeness, and brand on their platform. And that's wild. And if that happened to call her daddy, even though they are the hosts and the faces of the show, they that money would be going to Barstool and they would be getting a cut of it and not the bulk of it. And the farther you get from the starting point, from the runway you were given, the more it diminishes in terms of its importance and the more you focus on you being the indispensable one to the operation and therefore you play fast and loose with your leverage. But again, I'll get back on topic. Um, The only thing I also will say kind of, you know, relevant to the Joe Rogan conversation and the gender and the, you know, how that affects the way people perceive podcast length because women are chatty and rambly, but like, you know, men go in depth. It's just, it's so ridiculous. But um, is similarly, I, I want people to separate the subject matter of call her daddy, the raunchy nature of it, the, the sex talk, the fact that they're young women that speak colloquially like they're two, you know, girlfriends, like to separate that from how you perceive what they deserve. I think that there's this interesting um, criticism in podcasting where w- people really focus on the content of women's podcasts because women's interests are trivialized. And there also is a lot of focus on women's voices in an unproductive manner. If you people I'm I feel like people are I am lucky. This has not been my biggest problem, but I've seen it with other podcasters how the reviews will be not necessarily about the tone of their voice and the their the way that they speak and anything constructive that can help a person who talks for a living because it's fair to critique the way somebody speaks if speaking is their meal ticket. But when you say your voice is screechy or high pitched or annoying or nasal or makes my ears bleed or it's like nails on a chalkboard the way somebody's voice makes you feel is so often rooted in this unbelievable sexism where we just are annoyed by hearing women talk and we let ourselves be okay with fundamentally being annoyed by the tone of their voice when really if they're successful and it's working clearly some people are listening and leaving that review and talking shit in that way it's not only unproductive it's not helping our cause there is only in the top five overall pot like highest earning podcasters of all time Keep in mind, Caller Daddy hasn't been around long enough to be like all time top five. There's only one female hosted podcast. That's my favorite murder. There's a huge disparity, not only in, um, you know, representation of women in the podcasting space, 
but also in terms of income generation in the podcasting space. And the top podcasts by men are all incredibly long, yet these networks that I've gone to are acting like it's my death wish. And I don't I don't constantly say that because I feel bad for myself or I'm trying to justify things. I say that because I think it's important to point out double standards. And I think it's important for people that are on the receiving end of that to not consider it as whining, but as a very valid example of why it's important to, to have women in the field in different formats, re- representing different styles, representing different backgrounds. And even if it's non-existent and they don't have a proxy for its success that makes it easy to onboard you, um, you know, actually empowering, you know, dynamic, diverse female voices in different formats of podcasts to represent the very dynamic range of women that exist. And especially like I want to encourage any women to get into podcasting, period, because I don't think we're competitive. I think there's space for everyone. And I think that just like you are your own person, there is no way to be on a podcast and to like, not, I I mean, maybe, but it would be so hard for me to be anything other than me and exactly what I think, because I'm talking for so long. This is the most raw version of my personality. And I think that that's why podcasts are so wonderful. They're so, it's such an intimate medium where you can identify with a person just like you would a friendship. Some people you click with, some people you don't. And it's not that anybody else coming on the scene is going to take away from your listenership or is going to cause this, you know, detrimental churn. If anything, I'm always excited to add more shows to my roster. I spend half of my life just like scrolling through Netflix, trying to be like, what should I launch? What's good? You know, I prefer audio format. I love podcasts and I love taking on new ones. And beyond that, if you're a woman of color, please, please, please consider if there's any part of you that's ever wanted to start a podcast. I think representation of women of color is so, so low in the podcasting space. And I think that it's so important that as this medium gets more popular, gets more valuable, and, you know, gets more listeners, that there are more podcast hosts that represents all listeners. And this medium has such a unique opportunity to intimately communicate your story in a way that can be legitimately helpful to people that I just want to make sure women who have stories and women with a point of view and something to say aren't held back by this, you know, category seeming cluttered or by it's, you know, seeming like a lot of work or whatever, because it is. But I, if if you want to try or start a podcast, I think it's worth trying because yeah, I did it for 18 months unpaid, but I genuinely loved it. And I did it on the side and like any developed business. And I'm, I never want people to quit their jobs. I always want you to develop it on the side. I think that you quickly get a taste for if you love it so much, you are energized by it, period, and are willing to work for free for a longer term payoff. Or if it is so de-energizing that you would need money to justify it at the beginning. And therefore you have your answer, you know? It's okay if things take time to make money and take time to build. Anything that requires an audience is going to take time. And you just have to be okay sometimes performing for an audience of zero if it means getting closer to where you ultimately want to be. That is my pitch for, you know, I think a lot of people are like, don't start a podcast, it's too cluttered. But I want to encourage people. If if this is something you would enjoy, absolutely. Um, You can't, like, it's never too late in the game if you're providing something different and adding value in a new way. Everything needs to be reinvented is for some if some if I can reinvent the doormat, you can certainly carve out your place in the sky as it relates to podcasts. Uh, but yeah, I, I just I guess I can't reiterate enough. They're not being greedy. They are delivering serious revenue. 
And it doesn't matter if they're young women. It doesn't matter if they're inexperienced. It doesn't matter if they don't have credentials. It doesn't matter what they look like, what they sound like, what they talk about. All that matters is the return on your investment and the return they are producing for Barstool is unfucking believable And they are being paid a very, very low percentage of that value that while they couldn't have known that they were going to be worth that much, they have every right to fight for mid-contract because it is so disproportionate and exponential to any projected growth that they would normally expect. And I think Barstool acknowledges that, and that's why they were even willing to compromise. This is where it gets into the IP piece and where it's like, oh, what brats, like they should have, they had to stay in contract, da 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 and why it actually is worth it for Barstool to negotiate, even though they have a contract, is because... Well, first of all, okay, that that acquisition for the whatever thirty seven percent that put their Barstool's valuation at four hundred fifty million dollars, and if they have a hundred million dollars in revenue a year, and thirty five million dollars of that is podcasts, and Call Her Daddy is their biggest podcast, that is case you know number one why I think that that hundred thousand dollars he's losing per episode is a huge huge understatement. I think that they're making way more money than that per episode that he maybe didn't want to fully disclose. So he picked like a kind of round number and um, they are a, a legitimate piece of the pie that makes up the revenue portfolio of Barstool and Barstool has incentive to want to keep them. And even though they have the IP and from the beginning, they could have been like, we're not renegotiating. You're being bratty. We gave you this. We're keeping call her daddy by a brand strength is very contingent upon the essence of its brand, which lies in Alex and Sophia. The talent is important. The brand is important. Then when they're not able to coexist, it's a huge problem. And they there needs to be a level of recognition of that, A, needing to be a mutually beneficial relationship, but B, Alex and Sophia need the Call Her Daddy name. The Call Her Daddy name needs Alex and Sophia. And with Barstool owning Call Her Daddy, anything they do outside of their this specific money they get for their podcasting deal, all like any merch, any touring, any TV, movie, you know, book, whatever, any of that is going to be Barstool's revenue. And I assume they'll get a cut of it, but it's like a cut of a cut. And when they're the personalities and the ones doing all the work, this is where you might underestimate the importance of intellectual property at the beginning. But as you get further into it and you see the money that is a result of your active work, you realize the importance of leveraging your brand to generate a shit ton of passive income. Rich people have you know, a singular stable source of income. Wealthy people have a diversified portfolio of high and low risk investments and different revenue streams from different categories. And like, I know you guys understand the basics of finance and I'm not, again, trying to Kate explain, but just, you know, it the, it makes total sense that they would want to be using the call her daddy name elsewhere because the by diversifying, not only are you, able to increase your footprint and maximize your sources of income while you're popular. You're also diversifying the source of where it comes from. Therefore, if one folds, you're minimizing your overall financial risk, because if you lose one income, you'll still have the other, you know, in theory. Um, But beyond that, the it's important to have sources of active and passive income. To quote one Shep Rose from Southern Charm, mailbox money. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, I just don't think people realize You know, people like David Dobrik, for example, who is everywhere. He's 23 years old. Look at his TikTok at your own risk. His mansion is beautiful. And I wish I was quarantined there. Um, And he just seems to be like very happy and fun. And I'm starting to slowly understand him. But he 
people think he makes all of his money off of YouTube videos. No, he I, I, I think he makes like over 80, if not 90 percent of his income from merch. How do you make money off merch? You own your IP and you license it and you leverage other companies with existing infrastructures and distribution channels so you don't have to do any work and you just make money on the side while people use your likeness to sell a bunch of shit on your behalf. It's glorious. Jojo Siwa, same thing. Yeah, she has her tours and her music and whatever, but her merch is what crushes it. And I think I mentioned this earlier, but like you can upcharge for merch because there's the buying power of trying to place, you know, your product in front of your, you know, target demographic whether it's age, gender, location, income, psychographic characteristics, whatever, in front of the most likely people that could like your product. But fans already do like your product. You, It's like the, the, the hard sell isn't there. And the buying power of a fan is so much greater than that of a general target audience that you can charge more and you can transverse categories that maybe don't even make sense, but people will buy it if it has your name on it. So, yes. They decide they want to venture into merch. They can't. Color Daddy's open by Barstool. Um, after they kind of started talking about wanting to separate from Barstool, they there were rumors that started to come out that they were no longer on speaking terms. The New York Post said they're not speaking to each other anymore. They've completely turned on each other and started arguing over who was the real talent and who did more of the heavy lifting for the podcast. I think the audience would be surprised to learn what has been going on behind the scenes with them. It's not the loyal, fun-loving friendship they put out there. Ooh, I'm surprised if people couldn't kind of read that, you know. Um, but yeah, they've always had this very like fun, breezy persona. And basically what happened, according to Dave and kind of corroborating with Sophia's very vague, unhelpful story she did yesterday. And I wish we've heard we'd heard from Alex by now. But I think what was happening is even before they stopped talking behind the scenes, they were having conversations with probably agents, managers, people in the business, trying to figure out the worth of Call Her Daddy, trying to figure out the risk of uh, jumping ship away from Barstool. So this was kind of all kind of happening. And there was conversations in the post. There hadn't been episodes in April for several weeks. The quarantine, they've been completely MIA, just to back up a little bit. And like beyond cryptic episode titles that were like, you know, Reddit conspiracies are trying to figure out and them saying, we'll never leave you daddy gang. And like people knew something was going on. But then they just didn't show up to work for a while. There started there was like a cryptic post. that was like the trail will be revealed, kind of like teasing it. And then on May 18th, Dave Portnoy, the president of Barcel, he in a interesting, maybe not intentional, but like a power play that made me a little queasy, um, just in terms of like dropping a call her daddy episode with their faces on it. But it's him talking and they don't have to consent to it. They don't have to approve it. It, at the end of the day, they are the talent, yes, but he is the owner. And I think maybe I'm just a little sensitive to, like, you know, that sort of power dynamic in a workplace of, like, somebody owning you. But again, they are employees, which I keep having to remind myself. Um, so he drops an episode that it's now Wednesday, is still number one. I, don't, I, I can't even imagine. I assume he's making back his, whatever, half a million in revenue that he lost in the past month. Uh, but he's also saving half a million in revenue if they aren't employees anymore. Um, but basically, he he's so frustrated. He's over it. And um, he kind of explained what had been going on this whole time that painted kind of a different picture in terms of not only what was going on behind Barstool's back, who was their employer uh, for all intents and purposes, and what was going on between the two women. So 
Alex and Sophia had been shopping Call Her Daddy to other networks and other media companies. And apparently the, you know, nexus of even starting to do that behind the scenes is Sophia's boyfriend, Peter Nelson, the uh, executive at HBO. I think he's like maybe 38. He's an EVP. He's high up. He's got media experience. He's no, He knows what he's doing. Um, he is like kind of tall, dark and handsome, and he is kind of a more chiseled version of Lord Farquaad from Shrek. Um, and I am only talking about a man's appearance because that's what people do to us. And the way Sophia talked about him on the podcast, they always called him suit man. And so they're kind of like painting this picture of this, like, you know, I think when I, whenever I picture an idea like businessman, I think of, um, Matthew Bomer in white collar, a show I don't even watch, but I get it so confused with suits. I constantly have to look up who's in suits and who's in white collar. It's very hard to keep, um, you know, secondary, tertiary, cable network, scripted shows straight. And as much as I love USA, clearly characters unwelcome in my brain because I just cannot distinguish them. And the fact that I'm not watch, I have not watched Suits and I love Meghan Markle so much just speaks to how utterly disinterested I am in workplace dramas. <laughs> anyway, unless the workplace drama is Dorit Kemsley trying to make Buka de Beppo happen, I'm not. I, if I can get a Vanderpump Rules of Buka, do people call it Buka or am I just doing that because of Boca? <laughs> <laughs> oh lord oh lord farquad okay moving on so yeah but they could probably have negotiated something with that ip toward the end of the contract especially with their success you know there's immense incentive for bar you know i even though i think they gave them a pretty good deal that i'll talk about in a second um there's a huge incentive for barstool to keep them too because the value of call her daddy the brand is only as strong as their consistency and ability to deliver the end product they're and they're not even showing up to work right now and breaching their contract without any any regard whatsoever and if they have a rift in their friendship and if they resent barstool and it affects the actual podcast and medium like then it becomes high risk for barstool to make this deal that favors the, the talent if the talent is you know proven to be somewhat disloyal and inconsistent the, at the end of the day, you need people to deliver on their job. And OK, so the sorry if I'm skipping around a lot. The lawyers of Alex and Sophia approached um, Barstool and said with a list of demands a few months ago when they decided they ultimately wanted to renegotiate their contracts and the list of demands was $1 million guaranteed for each of them. They no longer wanted to be Barstool employees, and they wanted 50% of all money earned from the brand, including merch and ads, and they wanted to own the brand. So they wanted to transfer ownership of Call Her Daddy, you know, the intellectual property to them, but they'd revenue share, I guess, the merch and ads with Barstool. But also they weren't employees. They were contractors, obviously giving them a lot more freedom. Um, and Dave said that there was absolutely no benefit or anything offered to like that. That's, that's a, that is a scenario that only favors them, which you should start out a negotiation with something that's unreasonably favorable to you, but not something insulting. So Dave cut off negotiations like they're in a contract. It's not like he was losing them. Like they're contractually bound to execute on their job for the next 18 months. And that is when they started Shopping call her daddy around looking to go to another network and break their contract. I don't know what the terms of breaking their contract would look like. I don't know if they had. I don't know. Not all contracts come with 
most don't come with easy outs. And I can't imagine this contract was going to be easy to sever, but perhaps the you know monetary trade-off made the legal fees and uh, you know whatever fines worth it. So Barstool's basically like, if you take call her daddy somewhere else, like to quote him literally, he said, we're going to sue the fuck out of you like you're under a three-year contract. And yeah, you can't take somebody else's intellectual property and use it as your own. Like it's just it, like, there's no planet in which that would work. Um, so instead of continuing to work and to compromise and figure it out, they just stop showing up to work. And as a result, the company is losing around a hundred grand an episode, which I'd argue is conservative. And he offered them a deal when, you know, obviously they think that was a tactic, like, okay, we're just not going to show up. And if you're not willing to fork over what we want, like we have the ability to like actively lose your money, which I think he could probably still sue them even if he even just for not showing up to work. I don't really know. So they don't show up to work. He's losing money and has to respond. And Barstool offers them something I'd argue a deal that's pretty fair, especially considering they're still in contract. And he offered them a deal that would guarantee each of them $500,000 plus bonuses. It would knock six months off of their contract and let them walk away at the end with their intellectual property. That, (laughs) okay, so all they wanted to get out of the contract and to be able to do their own thing, right? Um, He's willing to shorten the contract. And beyond that, the thing that they want that is so valuable, he would give them if they would ride this out for one year. And they've only been doing this for 18 months they only fulfilled half their contract it's just really <laughs> yeah it's, it's not the, they have not been doing this that long and they're like yeah clearly already fed up and needing more and like i said the value is there and i get the frustration but i like there's no planet in which i wouldn't show up to work i like i would feel awful i there's there's I, you know what i mean like i think you can renegotiate and i think you can have uncomfortable work interactions and I think you can fight for your value without burning bridges and I think when negotiation tactics get that below the Gucci belt it just is ugly and unnecessary and it's just never going to net out in a place where there's not immense built up resentment that's impossible to come back from they always say you can't come back from resentment maybe that would have never happened because they resented them for even giving them that deal in the first place but again It wasn't a bad deal for who they were then. And the entire point of an investment is paying as little as you can up front to get the most return. And while that's not always that appealing and like doesn't seem like the nicest thing to do or the fairest thing to do, it's just kind of capitalism. It just kind of is what it is. And I think that that's where people, I don't know, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, again, I don't love it is what it is because it it doesn't encourage people to reexamine or critically think about something. but venture capital firm gives a hundred companies an exorbitant amount of money to a normal person and 99 of them will fail, but one of them will pay off and then some to make up for the 99 that failed and generate a return that is exponentially higher than any of the other ones would have. And therefore is worth it. It's a gamble. It's a, it's kind of a numbers game and much like Lady Gaga, you know, if there were 99 people in a room that don't believe in you, all it takes is one. And that one person is Bradley Cooper. For every podcast Barstool invests in, they hope they find a Bradley Cooper. So they probably invest in most of them equally. And Caller Daddy was the Bradley Cooper. And the way it works when your stock rises over time is you renegotiate based on your present value. And 
even though there was probably benefits to severing from Barstool and capturing more of the revenue associated with Caller Daddy, I'm sure they were presented with the dilemma of if they own the intellectual property, then, you know, going forward, it kind of caps our earning potential from the brand. So do we want to spend all this time and energy, you know, dumping equity into a brand that we don't ultimately own? Um, it's like renting versus owning. I am a renter. I am just giving somebody money that I am getting no equity for. I'm not building toward anything. I'm, I'm not producing any sort of return. I am just literally draining money. They are just literally draining their time building somebody else's dream. And I, and I don't think they understood that when they started. But to come back and to offer them the intellectual property, if they just fulfilled their contract, but not even that, he offered to give them an insane raise to the tune of $425,000 guaranteed and let them keep their IP and sever the contract by six months. It's actually a very, very, very good deal. And, and upon renegotiating, their value would be reassessed. And if they were allowed to keep their IP, I don't know what that renegotiation would have looked like if they would have stayed with Barstool potentially and then it would kind of been a bidding war for where they go. That probably would have been the best case scenario they could have put themselves in. Um, but like, that's just not that. Jennifer Lawrence, to cycle through more of Darren Aronofsky's favorite actors with Bradley Cooper. Um, she, didn't she make like a terrible amount of money off of the first Hunger Games? Or maybe that was like Kristen Stewart in Twilight. It's like when you're brought into a franchise and you're kind of unknown, you know, the first movie, you may not make a lot, but when you become indispensable to a major revenue generating operation to a corporation, you have leverage. Financial leverage is important. It's the most important, but I'd argue there's an element of human relationships and goodwill um, that are kind of required to have a healthy working relationship going forward. And I think these negotiations get so vicious. And well, yeah, I think Dave, especially when they didn't show up to work, there's the ultimate slap in the face, especially when the, he gave them a deal that I'm sure he did not want to under any terms. But I think what he probably saw happening was what is the call her daddy brand without the these women? Like if we're going to fight so hard to keep this brand that they're willing to walk away, does this brand exist without them? Like probably not. And, you know, to their credit, they probably could have gone somewhere and started a new brand. Like it's only been 18 months. It's not like they've been at this for 25 years. Whatever they call themselves, I'm sure they could figure it out. They could capture a decent amount of the audience and move on. Like I said, I'm not sure how that would work because Barstool does have a specific male audience and I think really helped, you know, figure, find the right market for them. But just as Joe Rogan's listeners will go to Spotify, I'm sure theirs would go to Wondery or whatever. But regardless of scenarios, so Barstool had something to lose by losing them, but keeping the brand because one doesn't really exist without the other. They had something to lose by walking away from the brand and starting a new one. The only situation where both parties won, both parties were maximizing a degree of earning potential while also respecting the constraints of the contract that was signed is exactly what they offered. And I and like, trust me, I'm not a huge Barstool fan. I think there's a lot of that, like, you know, there's. There's a lot there um, that I an hour 40 need to not go into. But um, and I and I, my inclination is to be like, they suck. That's not fair. But I actually do think that's very fair. Um, the four hundred twenty five thousand dollars salary increase for a con. Again, they're in the contract where they signed for seventy five thousand. It's a huge increase 
within the terms of the contract. Do I think they had the right to renegotiate relative to their value? Yes. Do I think that offer was fair given that they were even willing to renegotiate within a contract? Yes. And beyond that, I don't give a shit about their salary. The equity and the wealth is in the brand. It's in the intellectual property. For them, for Barstool not to have to lose the earning potential from that for the next 18 months and for them to not have to deal with the complete branding shift in the audience movement and all that goes into becoming something that's not call her daddy when that's like the cult name, like the daddy gang, like that, that is, that is what they are. What are they going to hashtag on their Bumble profiles now? Founding fathers, hashtag father figure, hashtag forgive me father for I have sins. Like, I don't know. Um, but I, I guess with the hot priest, father is a little sexier than daddy, maybe thanks to Fleabag. So what do I know? But anyway, when you're looking forward and forecasting your income and trying to figure out what is going to be the best for the health of your brand and your financial situation going forward. You do not look at cash and salary and a singular form of steady income. You look at the highest growth asset you have and you maximize that. And that is the brand and the merch and the books and the TV and the movies and the million categories they could transverse because they are insanely popular. They are very young they it doesn't even matter what it's about or what kind of quality there is because popularity wins over quality all day every day in entertainment and they could fucking soar and to not be willing to stay under the wing of the people that gave them a runway for the next year even though i don't believe in the lisa vanderpump brand of i made you which she hangs over the heads of all the vanderpump rules cast members i do think that when it's not been that long when they did give you everything you have, when you literally started from nowhere, and when they're willing to work with you and compromise, there there comes a point in negotiation. It's an art and a science. You have to push for what you want, but you have to equally concede. There, it, the, the entire point is that it has to be mutually beneficial. And when you push, push, push for only what you want and don't show any sort of respect for their needing to be an upside for the partner, it 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 gets to a place where it's no longer worth it to fight, to go back and forth. And in their eyes, your potential and your worth to them plummeted because the cost of having to deal with you becomes higher than the benefit of having you around. And I think that he got to a point where he was just completely over it as evidenced by a text he sent Alex saying they, I think he said something like, you're the most greedy, ungrateful, disloyal people I've ever worked with in 17 years, which I can't imagine Barstool's exactly always working with the cream of the crop, but I don't know. So anyway, he starts to, Dave's like, this is a no-brainer deal. And he didn't hear from the co-hosts or their lawyers for days. And I think Alex realized, shit, like, this is a good deal. This makes sense. I think she it finally clicked with her. Um, but that Sophia would never agree because she was being influenced by her boyfriend, Peter Nelson, the HBO executive. Let me find a quote. Dave said, um, I was starting to hear whispers and Alex confirmed it. And this is a big part of the story. Sophia's new boyfriend, Peter Nelson of HBO, had been shopping around you know, quietly the call her daddy brand. Obviously, he probably has all the media connections in the world. And obviously, he probably sees the earning potential. Again, don't understand how you would shop to call her daddy when they don't own it. Um, but apparently, he was operating like almost as a manager and helped them get an offer from the podcast network Wondery 
Oh, they were going to call the podcast The Fathers. Sorry, not Free the Fathers. Um, and that Alex wanted to return to Barstool and negotiated a deal that would give her 75% of the brand, leaving a quarter for Barstool and cutting out Sophia completely. And then Dave said that he offered Sophia her own show, but she declined. And that Alex might return to take over the original show, but a lot is still up in the air. And a part of him is like, no amount of money is worth it. Let's just get rid of them, keep the IP, and then start this over again ourselves. Um, there, so he's kind of like done with them. He did offer Alex a seventy-five twenty-five of her own show that cut out Sophia. Sophia denied her own show. There, that would be kind of interesting. And Barstool knows that would do really well if they had rival shows. Um, it, it might not stand the test of time, but it would at least generate a lot of interest at the beginning. And um, then yesterday, Sophia, in a very vague statement, said that she had found out somewhere along the way that Alex was making deals behind her back and treating her kind of like an employee, she said, and um, admitted to shopping Call Her Daddy around to other places, but kind of positioned it as for the benefit of the daddy gang. And she said that, it wasn't handled well and she would have done things differently. But when she found out that her best friend and roommate, Alex was going behind her back, she felt betrayed and that it wasn't 50 50 and she didn't want to feel like an employee. And she basically was like, I want to do call her daddy. I love to return to call her daddy, but not as Alex's employee. And um, it just needs to be equal. And then she kind of like thanked people and that was it. And it was super vague. She didn't acknowledge her boyfriend. She didn't acknowledge Wondery, the father's, she didn't acknowledge why she turned down the deal. Um, she like it said nothing. <laughs> What's interesting is that this whole thing, like like Barstool is selling merch that says cancel suit man or something because Sophia called her boyfriend suit man on the show. And again, Barstool owns everything they say and do. So they're capitalizing off the controversy, you know, which I don't know how I feel about. But I'd love to know how many people are buying those shirts. It's kind of strange because. It's like, so at the end of the day, are the Caller Daddy fans, are, are are they more loyal to the concept of the show staying together and would buy merch like Cancel Suit Man? Or are they more loyal to the girls in their best interest and will follow them wherever they go? I'm assuming more are in the latter. But I have to say, even if I was a fan, after even if I didn't like Dave and didn't like Barstool, after hearing his episode, even though I'm interested in other sides, I it is hard to defend them not taking that final offer and it sounds like alex when she got the good offer that was completely a no-brainer she agreed to it and sophia and peter nelson are ultimately the problem and the wedge between the girls and i can understand why that in and of itself would make people want to cancel suit man um but beyond that i don't know is it like is call, like could alex do it on her own like will it cease to exist without the two of them and their dynamic even if they even if they allegedly smooth things over, would they? And would it be the same fun, free, breezy dynamic? Like, no, this is just unfortunately what happens. I think Alex trying to go for 75% really pissed her off in that it sounds like now her her people or Sophia's people are, have said she wants to take the deal, but only if it's 50-50. And now I assume Barstool and Alex are pissed. You know, and it's like, well, no, you said no the first time. and You're not going to get everything you want, even though you tried to shop it behind our back and screw us over. And I can see how Alex was kind of getting pressured by the money and the executive and her boyfriend and to move it to the fathers. And 
you know, when you're kind of getting drug into something and you like objectively agree with it, but like your heart is kind of elsewhere and you're like, yeah, but like I, I get following the money and I get following the fame and, uh, you know, capitalizing. But also I do think relationships are important. And it sounds like she kind of came around and was started being reasonable toward the end, but definitely started out from a place of, com- you know, complete uncooperation. I think that it's important to value more than just money. And it's important to, you know, as you are headed toward the treasure and as you are headed toward the horizon to acknowledge that so many people were essential in steering you there. And do they deserve, you know, the majority? Do they, you know, deserve to take credit? Like, no. But how can you as a team maintain some sort of working health, even as that grows closer and even when you get there? And there's all that sort of like emotional intelligence that I think has to play into working with people and to endure a harsh negotiation. And beyond that, I think that there's just no regard for the long game in mind, because again, uh, to minimize the risk of switching brand names, switching networks, losing audience, Barcelona people have pretty diehard loyal fans, especially with Dave making them look greedy and or the risk of breaking up the band of just having one of them. It's just like a year is nothing in the grand scheme of life. A year is nothing. And it's I get being young and I get chasing money and I get feeling like there's a huge opportunity cost at hand. But at the end of the day, I don't think they realize all things considered their path to stardom was smooth. It was quick. It was largely pretty favorable toward them. And they had the right to pursue more money. And I'm Barstool acknowledge that. So therefore, they were willing to give them more money and they would only be tethered to a less proportionate amount than they were allegedly worth for one calendar year if they could just fucking keep it together and they couldn't and that is what's so so sad is not only the i don't know the details of peter's involvement and driving a wedge in between them but this is why you have to be have open communication about everything about money about intentions about going forward this is why there can't be a third party person in your ear motivating you. And you have to if you are in a partnership, they have to be looped into absolutely everything. And I've always wanted a co-host, but I'm not going to lie when this made me feel a little bit grateful that I'm the person that calls the shots because it would be horrible to try to be able to produce creatively. And for us, a product that is based on your friendship and chemistry, you can't fake that. I mean, I guess you can, but like it would be very, very difficult. And like, I just, I feel like they could have had like a late night style, like Playboy After Dark, like Howard Stern, like they could have had a raunchy TV show. They could have had all the merch in the world. They could have continued to absolutely crush the charts. Joe Rogan's moving to Spotify. I don't know if that takes them off the iTunes charts or whatever, but like they could have continued to reinvent and had guests and like, you know, kept a positive relationship with a pretty big media company, all things considered, even though Barstool's not like NBCU or Disney ABC, it's still like there, there's a balance, right? And it's like, I, I wonder how you, how people do this right, you know, like, how do people make sure the ones that gave them a chance are properly compensated and how the people that gave you that chance, how do they not hang their involvement over your head to a point where you're indebted for life? At what point can you get credit for the work you've actually done? Because I think that's so important, too. And I go back and forth on this. And I'm sure I've gone said different things with like Taylor Swift in different scenarios because I don't really know. Taylor Swift was different because all Taylor Swift wanted at the end of her contract was the right to her masters, to her intellectual property. And that is the only thing they didn't give her. 
even though it was for sale and even though she could afford it, they didn't give her the opportunity to buy her master's outright and instead, despite her for not taking a shitty one-for-one deal where she could earn back her albums over the next decade under a label and leader she didn't even like anymore that was going to ultimately sell it to Scooter Ron, she didn't take a shit deal. The guy got hurt, like his ego was bruised and he sold it not to the highest bidder because she would have bid that amount, but to the guy, man, she hates Scooter Braun. And that to me was a more an issue of, of power dynamics, of spite, of you you would never do something just to spite a male colleague who didn't make a terrible business decision. She didn't accept a terrible deal. So when you'd go around and like sell her life's work, all of her journals to a man that was instrumental in her takedown, like it's fucking ridiculous. And it's just, it's it's like he had this ownership over that he abused. It's an abuse of power. And a lot of people reached out and were like, you talked about how contracts weren't fair with Taylor Swift, but now you're saying Barstools is fair. It's totally different. Call Her Daddy is in a contract that they should be fulfilling and they're not. And they were still offered their intellectual property, the most valuable thing you have. Taylor Swift fulfilled her contract for 13 years and still was not offered her intellectual property that hugely contributed and inflated to the value of the sale of the label that he was about to sell. And she still did not have access to buy the work that was rightfully hers. Barstool is being fair. They made a mistake. They should not have let that dude get in between them in the first place. They should have had transparent discussions. Sophie and that dude are going to break up and she's going to have Im- imploded <laughs> what could have continued to explode in ways that they probably don't even understand. And I just, I think of the money left on the table and I shudder. I truly do. I cannot imagine those downloads. I cannot imagine having that kind of audience reach. I cannot imagine being in a position where I had nothing but options. Again, one calendar year and all they would have had are all the options in the world. And then they could have taken the brand and run at what, 28, 29 years old? Are you kidding? I, this is where I, why I wanted to be clear of, I don't think it's greedy to want for more. And I don't think it's bad. They've renegotiated, but I do think that they are completely misguided and handled this so, so wrong And even Sophia admitting that last night, and clearly Alex has come around. But this is why it's so important when you want to be like a bad bitch and be strong in negotiations. Yes, but you do have to concede. You do have to compromise. And you can't light everything on fire when it doesn't go your way. There's a difference between being strong and unapologetic and getting what you want and fighting for your worth and taking your ball and going home when you don't get your way because you fundamentally don't understand the nature of a negotiation, the nature of a mutually beneficial contract, the nature of actually, you know, it being pretty standard to at least give a portion of income to people that ultimately launched you into the position you're in now. And if you ignore all of that and take your ball and go home, guess what? You're not going to be invited to the next game. (laughs) You're not fun to play with. You're not a team player. You're not even a good opponent. You're not, (laughs) it's, it's, in anything like sportsmanship matters the way you approach things matter and i think the way they approach this is equally a function of their inexperience and maybe partial immaturity they have not been doing this long at all um but also being involved with very like shark lawyers and agents and also the boyfriend getting in the ear and i just it kills me like anybody anywhere please for the love of god do not make permanent life-altering decisions about your career your income your wellspring things that the only things that give you your independence do not make those decisions dependent on another person's presence in your life. If you guys break up, is he going to try to come after a cut of foundingfathers.com or whatever the hell the next venture you're going to do? Like, I don't know. 
it's just like very sad to me that like the power and influence of her older, more experienced boyfriend is completely clouding her ability to make decisions on what's best for her long term. And I always tell you guys about, you know, making decisions when you're young. It's not that you're stupid and in, or incapable and you can't make good decisions. It's not that you're not going to meet people and have jobs and do things that are incredibly instrumental to your life. It's just that the, I think in life, I always hope that future me is in a better position, that I understand the situation better, that I'll know what's best for me at that time. And if I'm on the fence about something in real time, if I feel hesitation, if I'm not sure where to go, I, I try to not make shiny appealing decisions that benefit me in the near term. And I try to keep the long term in mind, knowing that I need space and flexibility to change as a person for my priorities, interests, goals, whatever to change. And that future me will be so happy I didn't do something binding or permanent. So she was able to explore. And so she had options. And so she had her independence. And I know that I sound like a cheesy weirdo, but I really do think about life like this. Um, I look back on my younger self when you know, being really depressed and having so many issues throughout life. And just like, I want to kiss my younger self on the mouth for not staying with dudes in my hometown that would have never made me leave, for not staying at jobs I didn't need to be in, for taking chances, for not listening to people who talk shit or said I was doing something embarrassing or couldn't do stuff. Like, I, I, you have to lead with your potential and not your current reality. You have to pick that which is sustainable, not which is shiny. And I think that money matters. And I think that being your own advocate is so important. And I think that money matters, you, you know, your your income, your wealth, all of these things, we should fight in our, for our own value. We need to close the gap. I want women to make all the money and I want us to be just as bullish and just and, and not back down the same way men do. But I do think it's important when you're at these crossroads where major decisions are being made that affect future you you not only take inventory of what you have that makes you money, but who you are as a person and what you do in business that affects your life needs to reflect your values as a person needs to be an example of your own integrity. People will get in your ear all the time and tell you exactly what to do. And it makes you question your own instincts. But they're operating from a, a place of numbers. They're looking at this clinically. They don't have personal relationships with the people that are involved. So their objective opinion is going to be much more harsh and leave out the people aspect. I really do think that you need to be strong and argue for your value and all of that stuff. But at the same time, keep in mind that when you burn a bridge with the architect of that bridge, <laughs> they're not going to be too keen on your next FU new construction project. And they might tell all of their contractors and everybody they work with that you're the worst client they've ever had. And then you might be stuck on your island. It, it, you got to be careful. And it's, and again, I don't know what bar, I don't know the ins and outs. I'm sure there was a lot of manipulation on Barstool's part, but I just think that people get over, ob overly obsessed with money and f totally forget that even if you lose a little money or you lose a year, everything's a compromise. Human relationships are all we have. Your integrity and values are all you have. And in 10, 15, 20 years, when you look back on your decisions, they might not always make contextual sense with where you are now and you might regret things, but you're not going to regret things that align with who you are as a person and your values as a person. And when somebody comes in and is trying to make you make decisions that feel unnatural and go against your gut, listen to that. But if, just I guess all I want people to know is like, do not make every life altering decision based on the opinion of your passing boyfriend. And I don't care if he's an HBO executive. Boyfriends come and go. Money comes and goes. But relationships with people, your values and integrity and your comfort and confidence knowing 
that regardless of what happens, you did the thing that you knew was right and that you felt so strongly about in your gut. And I think that a lot of times we make decisions for other people. And when we do that, we're the only one that loses. And I really do think looking at Sophia's video, she was regretful and apologetic. And while she's mad at Alex for going behind her back, she wants to do the show, but has now fucked herself over. And I think she's in between a rock and a hard place where now her boyfriend's probably pissed because he made a back of the napkin wondery deal. Alex is pissed because she wouldn't go through on the good offer once they had it. And now she's not going to ever let her get less than 25, but she's going to be stubborn and only do 50-50 because I'll, if, if not that, then what's it all for? And it probably will just completely collapse on itself. And I think these women could do a lot of things and they have potential. And this isn't the end of their career by any means. It's just an unfortunate under-optimization of what could have been so much bigger had they just had the patience, had they chased the equity and not the salary, and had they put more stock in who they are, what they represent, and their personalities getting them to where they are. And while Barstool was an essential part of that, hedged their bets on their ability to achieve a level of longevity and success that far exceeds the cost of waiting out the contract one year in an effort not to sever every bridge, every tie, and for this to blow up in their face. When faced with a decision to harp on your past... And spend all of your energy and effort trying to recoup for something that you did. You have to ask yourself, what's more valuable? Obsessing over the things I've done that have a finite, that, 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 that cap out because it's already happened. Or focusing on moving forward, on focusing my future, on focusing on rebuilding. It doesn't mean it's right and it doesn't mean it's fair. And it's what Taylor Swift had to do too. And it was the right decision because he, the big machine would have been sold to Scooter and now she'd be working for him. At least the way I feel and the reason I felt permission and I felt okay with even backing off of like be there in five the mats and of fundamentally shifting my career and of doing all of these things that everyone told me not to and that were embarrassing, whatever. The reason I felt okay doing them was because instead of lie to myself and make shit up that I'm a one hit wonder and I feel that anxiety all the time. but. On my more lucid days, instead of believing that everything is a fluke, that my success is an accident, that it's the you know condition of one person or whatever, I believed if I did it once, I could do it again. And I believed that if I focused my energy more on taking one step forward and not two steps back, I'd ultimately be better off, probably not tomorrow or even in six months or a year or two. But to take the name, to own the name, call her daddy, just like I own the name Be There in Five, You, if you want it to be category agnostic, it can be. And when you own your own brand, your own name, your own property, you can parlay it anywhere you want. And that is all that matters. And that is where all of the value is. This podcast could be gone tomorrow. And while like RIP me, I would die. I also know that if I transversed from doormat owner to author to podcast personality, that I could also do something else and do it all over again, because we're not a product just of our current circumstances or environment. We're a product of our own efforts. And don't convince yourself that anything is ever the end all be all and that you won't be okay and that you won't get back up on your feet because it's just not true because you will because you're you and you did it once and you'll do it again and you rose up from the dead. You do it all the time. I want the best for these women. I think that they've built something incredible. I hope they learned. I hope they mend their friendship. I hope they'll, they're will they able to do it over again, and I'm sure they will. People don't get where they're going just because of who got them there. It also requires their own efforts and talents, and they 
have something that people love and that won't stop. Um, I, I only wish them the best. And I want women to fight for money and fight for what is fair and to not be taken advantage of. But more importantly, I don't want women thinking that their entire life, their entire future is a function of what they're worth now. Your current price has nothing to do with your overall value. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. It's always important to keep that in mind. And that was, I believe that's a Warren Buffett quote, but let's be honest, Rachel Hollis probably took credit for it. And let's be honest, Warren Buffett probably like took it from Jesus. I don't know. But to quote another, you know, profound prophet, to quote Danny, a queen, an icon, a legend, I will close with perhaps the most important lesson of all from the least expected source that has been a true bright spot in an otherwise trying time when doors are closed. What we have is open book, which is Jessica Simpson's memoir and a very relevant quote by Jessica Ann Simpson of Abilene, Texas, about hedging your bets on your future, on yourself, on your personal equity, and not over-focusing on price when you know your value is so much greater. I will end with the excerpt where she speaks about her divorce with Nick. It gives me goosebumps every time, and I'm feeling nervous like I just blacked out for the past two hours, and I'm just hoping that you'll forget everything I said and just remember Jessica's wise words. <laughs> but I'd be remiss not to ask, nay, beg you, if you'll share this in your story, if you're private, please tag me. If you'll tell a friend, if you liked this episode, it, it's, uh, it is tougher for an independent podcaster to get themselves out there, and it's a slower to burn. And while I'm so eternally grateful to anybody who's here, if you think anybody would like this, it would certainly help me out because my marketing department, while, while skilled, has a tendency to do things like dump, I don't know, eight hours into understanding the ins and outs of a podcast she doesn't even listen to to do an episode about it only to make the episode kind of not even really about that because she can't help herself and you know when all is said and done I sit here arguing for my own independence and then I'm also simultaneously considering should I pitch a show called barstool jorts I don't think enough people are aware of the perils of a barstool in terms of how it makes your outfit look when a person is seeing you broad back from behind leaning over a bar and that is their first point of entry beyond that wearing jorts on any sort of high top situation is an utter disaster and who the hell knows but your support through sharing through rating reviewing five stars subscribing through um joining patreon.com slash be there in five there's over 90 bonus episodes of me talking about much more personal stuff that's also how you have access to our powerpoint parties every saturday during quarantine i want to feature listeners we flip the script i have five people give a presentation for 10, 15, 20 minutes about a topic they want to deep dive into just like I do on the podcast. But instead, it's the community's time to shine. And it is such a joy. It is so much fun. Last week, I learned about influencers in North Korea. I learned about um, the ins and outs of competitive cheer. We talked about 90s figure skating. One presentation was why Christina Perry's Jar of Hearts is a bad bitch anthem. We've had the ballad of Ben Affleck. We've had a, a deep dive of a cauliflower. Truly, it is one of the great joys of my life to know and to see that you guys are just like me and that your curiosity goes into overdrive. You obsess over things that you uniquely care about, regardless of their relative importance to the world. Because it doesn't matter if everybody else cares about something. What matters is that you care about it. And if you care about it, I care about it. And I love, love, love getting to interact with you guys. And if there's any silver lining of this quarantine, it's taking the time to figure out a more close listener touch point where we can interact and I can learn more about you. And um, it really just like means a lot to me. So thank you to all of you that participate. And I'll see you on Saturday. If you want to join patreon.com slash be there in five support Nutrafol, obviously, thank you to them for sponsoring me in this trying time. 
And if you like this episode, like this deep dive, I have literally over 100 episodes semi-similarly. Uh, some are deep dive, some are random, more current events. The more popular series are definitely Mormon mommy bloggers. Um, the episodes about being in a sorority, uh, about uh, bridesmaid horror stories, about dating on Bumble. Uh, we have True Love Waits to talk about, you know, the conversation previously about women and sexuality. I did a TikTok deep dive that's pretty popular. If you're not totally understanding the pop, the platform, if well, a follow me on Instagram at be there in five f i v e, not the number five. And also, um, there's a new listener guide in my feed somewhere that's probably buried below the nine block. But there's also an uh, at the handle at be there in five podcast. There's a new listener guide that tells you all my most popular episodes, deep dives, and kind of tells you the highlights if you want to dive in. And thank you for listening to my. Um, housekeeping. Is it Becca and Grace to call it the desperation hour? It's so awkward, but it's like, please, for the love of God, share my podcast. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm not quite the caller daddy status yet. You know, right now I'm just call her chatty because people are like, your episodes are too fucking long. And I'm like, I got it. Thank you. I took liberties here just because I felt inspired by Joe Rogan's four hour and four minute episode that, you know, he's still getting a hundred million dollars. So if I want to talk, I'm going to talk. But alas, I realize you have places to be. So I will move on to my quote from one Jessica Ann Simpson, who, like a true queen, believed that there would only be smooth waters ahead so long as she was at the helm. And I did not make this connection until now, but this quote is quite literally about arguing for freedom from her father, and my mind is blown, and Jessica is giving me a spiritual experience once again. She says, Nick and my dad continued to fight over how much money I had to give him. I finally asked my dad and my business manager what the sum was. They said Nick wanted a certain number, and honestly, I don't remember what it was. If it sounds crazy that I can't remember, it was crazy to me that we had that kind of money to fight over after just three seasons of a show. We were both blessed by God, but Nick had a better lawyer. Just give it to him, I said. You all gotta stop. Just give him the money. He deserves the money. No way, no how, said my father. Dad, I said, this is for my freedom and you can't put a price on that. Do it. He relented and agreed to pay him the money just to be done. I'll make it back, I said. I promise, I'll make it back. And then I did. Give or take a billion. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to Pod. As always, let me know your thoughts, and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five, I swear. I'll be there in five.